Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us. This is episode 115. Uh, we are recording this on Sunday, February 28th, 2021, at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Recording a little early today, getting the recording in ahead of the Golden Globes, even though you probably won't be hearing this until after the Golden Globes, which is why we won't be talking about it today, but that's all right. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, as always, Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. How's it going today, guys? Stellar. Beautiful. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure that you subscribe, rate, review all over the place. We are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Stitcher. We are on Pandora. We are on Spotify. We are on YouTube. So check us out all over. Uh, check out the Daily Notes, uh, which is a part of this podcast stream and on YouTube. I know uh, his latest episode was a, a tournament of the greatest Star Wars characters. So that uh, I think he did a, a YouTube live of that yesterday with a bunch of other people. So pretty, pretty awesome stuff there. Uh, all right, uh, Zach, what are you drinking today? Well, we are talking about um, an Asian-centered movie, so I am drinking an Asian beverage here. The Han I had this a couple weeks ago, but here's another one. This is a Hana Awaka spar Sparkling Flower Sake, which is delicious and goes down wonderfully in the early afternoon. I say more podcasts at this time because we got to, you know, pop the can sooner. I want to know how you have more than one of those in your house at any particular time. Uh, yes, it's not, it's not a common occurrence, but, uh, I, this was the last one, so. Okay, okay. Enjoying it. Todd, how about you? Uh, I'm drinking beer for once. Uh, I got the Seven Seas Imperial Hazy IPA. Seven Seas, my, one of my favorite breweries, so. And, well, that, you've got a, an awesome, uh, awesome, uh, refrigerated, uh, or insulated growler from there too, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that thing, yeah. Nothing comes in handy when you have, like, long road trips and stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, I'm trying to find the name of my beer here. Uh, so, I went to the... There it is. I went to the... Um, went to Ridgewalker Brewery today uh, and, and got a fill-up. And, uh, um, and so, I got... This is from Hop Capital Brewery in Yakima. It is the Zero to Hero Strawberry Pineapple Hazy IPA. Uh, I like the fruit infused into the beer, but making sure it's still beer so it's not too much. So uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's It's got definitely has some flavor, but it's not overpowering. And I'm repping my Mariner shirt. I've got my, my Mariner's mug here because first spring training games are today. So baseball is back. Uh, check out my baseball preview articles that I'm writing. I write one for every team. They've already started. Pirates are the worst team in baseball. That's all you need to know right now. So, cheers. All right. So, uh, let's get into what we've been watching. And then we'll get to our uh, our featured review uh, that we all watched, which is a, another major awards contender um, in the never-ending Oscar awards race of uh, 2020. Uh, 
nothing nothing says 2020 quite like something feeling like it never ends because that's how 2020 felt so why not the awards race do the same thing then we have uh we're gonna do a power rankings uh of uh some interesting uh performances uh and that uh we're gonna get into before we get to trivia so let's get into what we've been watching and first up todd take us into the cager all right the cager review uh is uh from 2012, directed by Ronald Donald, Roger Donaldson, is Seeking Justice, which I feel like is the title of like every other movie I've reviewed. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's another one. Uh, Nicolas Cage uh, plays Will Gerard, who's a high school teacher. And he's married to Laura, played by January Jones. And uh, one night she gets assaulted and raped, and Will hears about it and he just like loses his mind. And he's approached by this guy named Simon, who's played by Guy Pierce, and he. Uh, says he belongs to this organization who is kind of like vigilante-esque uh, where they're like go after people who are going to somewhat get away with a crime or just uh, not really have much punishment. So it's sort of like Dexter Code-ish. And, uh, but he tells Will that he'll take care of the, the rapist as long as when he asks, he'll uh, return the favor. And so things get really complicated when he actually asks him months later to kill someone for the organization. And the movie takes place in New Orleans, which is really only known because, like, there's, instead of, like, an abandoned warehouse, like, they have a, they have a big old battle scene in, like, an abandoned mall from Hurricane Katrina, and Nicolas Cage also asks who dat, like, he actually says it as a question, which is just totally Nicolas Cage and entertaining and, like, so wrong at the same time, um, and you can feel that it's the director of The Recruit, which I think is one of the more entertaining and underrated thrillers of the 2000s it has this issue that it takes itself seriously but it also is enough over the top that you can't really say say it's believable but it does some interesting things guy pierce i think is a really cool like villain type he uh that, that performance normally would be like really stoic or mysterious but he plays it like up as being devious and he's really interesting to watch and cage is a teacher which i don't think he's ever played a teacher before but uh then he seeks vengeance and, uh, which is just crazy. Like, it's, I mean, he got a Razzie nomination for this movie, which just shows that they're, they have even less credibility at being objective than the Golden Globes do. I, and I miss, and I miss January Jones being a thing. Like, this was in the height of, like, the Mad Men range. She had X-Men First Class this year as well. And then, ever since then, she's had two movie credits, and she was a regular on one TV show. And I don't get it, because she was always awesome, and always a highlight in her, in her movies. The movie kind of feels like Cellular meets The Adjustment Bureau, and, uh, I don't know, it's Cage doing action things instead of, like, the brooding thriller Cage, which I think is a good thing. I actually liked it. I'm giving it three stars. Puts it number 32 on the Cager between Birdie and the Wicker Man. So, yeah, there you go. Seeking justice. Wait, the Wicker Man is that high? Oh, yeah, I actually like the Wicker Man. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need a Cager review of that. It's the, maybe, the only positive review the on, on the whole uh, internet sphere. <laughs> um, I, I do have one issue with your review. I feel like Nicolas Cage has played a teacher before. Wasn't he a teacher knowing that movie about the end of the universe? Oh, yeah, or could be. he might have been a professor in that movie. I don't know if teacher, if you mean, if teacher and professor mean the same thing, but. Hmm. Um, oh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, you might be right there. And this is also one of the rare instances in the cager when we actually have a pretty competent director. 
Um, Roger Donaldson made Terry's favorite Anthony Hopkins movie, The World's Fastest Indian, and he also made um, Dante's Peak, which is way better than Volcano. And um, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe something should be said about um, having competent directors in the cager. Maybe that uh, generates a, a more favorable review. Oh, don't get me wrong. This movie had terrible reviews, but I I mean, I actually think it's really fun. And <laughs> I don't know. This is my, must have been at the... I don't know if Donaldson even works anymore, honestly, but... I mean, I like The Recruit a lot, and this it does remind me of that movie. Going from The Recruit to Seeking Justice isn't exactly an upward trajectory in your directorial <laughs> career, but... Yeah. Um, All right, Zach, go for it. Yeah, I do see also that it was the last movie that he's directed, or the most recent... No, actually, that's not true. Second most recent. He hasn't, he hasn't worked much. Um, okay, so a couple of things for, uh, for me to report. One is that... Um, I, uh, I, back when I, back when we were re- reviewing The Pickle Man, or whatever that stupid Seth Rogen movie was, um, you know, I got a, a, a week free subscription to HBO Max, and I watched the first episode of Euphoria, but then I canceled HBO Max. Now that I'm on it again, because, you know, God forbid, I gotta watch these stupid movies. Um, I did binge, um, the whole first season of Euphoria, and, uh, if, for those of you not familiar with the show, it is, it is, part, partly why I wanted to binge it was because we would reviewed Malcolm and Marie, which was directed by Sam Levinson, who is, uh, the creator and, and showrunner for, um, Euphoria. And the show stars, if you're not familiar with it, Zendaya, um, and basically this, uh, all-star cast of up-and-coming, uh, primarily actresses, um, uh, Hunter Schaefer, Maude Apatow, um, let's see, uh, Alexa Demi, Barbie Ferreira, and um, also, uh, maybe the most notable adult actor in it is Eric Dane, who is a.k.a. McSteamy from Grey's Anatomy. So what my wife and I noticed right away when he came on, on screen. Um, it tells the story of these teenagers living in, I don't know, I think it's Los Angeles, but it's sort of vague. Um, and it's definitely, you know, a teen-oriented show. Uh, the the Zendaya character, Rue, is just coming off of rehab. She is a drug addict, um, and she has this sort of backstory to each character. That's sort of the hook of each episode, and it's kind of through her voiceover narration that we're introduced to this very like sleazy world of you know um, sex addicted, drug addicted teens, um, and it's very like. On the surface, it sounds very CW, but actually the show is incredibly well produced. I mean, when you watch, particularly the first half of the first season, like, it is actually a remarkably produced show that feels almost like a mixture of, like, Gaspar Noah and, like, maybe early uh, Paul Thomas Anderson and even a little bit of Scorsese. Like, the camera is always in constant motion. There are these strange sets, sometimes with strobe lights and odd sort of um, key lights, uh, and it just feels alive. My favorite episode of the first season takes place at the carnival. And again, it just feels like nothing quite like I've seen on TV. Um, so I give the show thumbs up for the production values. I do feel like some of the subplots in the show are a little like, yeah, YACW type stuff. Um, I wish the show would focus a little bit more on, on Zendaya's um, drug addiction. There was other characters I didn't really care as much about. Um, but overall, it's, it's definitely worth watching. I want to watch the next season of it. I think the last episode of the first season is the weakest episode so that's sort of a buzzkill in a way but um it's definitely um intriguing and and todd i know you're a big fan of this show because you you've told me about it before like yeah. what are your thoughts yeah i mean i i agree it, it does look and feel different than almost any other tv show i've seen and i don't know you didn't watch the two like bridge episodes that... no i haven't seen those yet so i how, mean that, 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 that does something so, something interesting they're, they're kind of really different from each other even but uh 
Yeah, I mean, you'll see. I mean, it, it, it kind of fills in some gaps before you get to season two since they weren't able to shoot it yet. But yeah, I I, I agree. The Carnival episode is definitely a standout. It's, it, yeah, it's it's a great show. And I, 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 I have watched a few episodes. Uh, so, and, and that says something because the show just came out. So. Yeah, it definitely has some alpha dog qualities to it. Um, who plays the drug dealer in it? I mean, he's like, he's like right out of alpha dog, I feel like. Um, but he's great. Those scenes with him and Rue are great. I wish the show was actually more about that. And some of the other characters, I I felt like they were more tropes. Oh yeah. I love him too. He's awesome. Yeah. The show should, they're, they're obviously the big Tim, amazing Larry award winners from the show. They are great. They, they deserve their own spinoff, their own better call Saul. I, I hope HBO produces it. I would watch that. Yeah, for sure. I still need to watch that. Yeah, it it's pretty good. As a teacher, um, you, you kind of watch it, and it's like kind of uncomfortable to watch for sure. <laughs> um, I'm sure. But but um, Zendaya is great in it, and it's kind of a travesty that she hasn't gotten more recognition for it. I mean, she's it's the it's the best thing she's been in, and it, she it's an incredibly difficult role to play, and she's clearly like really versatile and pretty amazing in it. Well, well she did win the Emmy. Yeah, but no Golden Globe, right? She was that was the snub, right? I think was it is that I can't remember. Did yeah, she miss I mean, the they, nomination. Yeah, she didn't get nominated, and they, yeah, that was a big deal that she got shut out because she had yeah two chances for nominations and yeah neither. Yeah. All right. Did you say you had something else, Zach? Oh yeah, I did. I'll, I'll make this thirty seconds. I watched on Disney Plus Fantastic Four with Chris Evans. Oh my god, <laughs> I love that movie. Like it was so terrible. I almost want to deep dive it. I mean, oh my goodness, it was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. But I had such a big heart for it, and like it is just unbelievably awful I, you know the chris evans like motocross espn x Games scenes with him like on fire on the ski course uh, you can't make that stuff up it, it is an incredible work of art so check it out thank you disney plus for putting that on and technically calling it a marvel movie because i don't know what it is it's some sort of bastardized version of just junk and it's amazing yeah, that's the only Fantastic Four movie I've seen, and uh, it's supposed to be the best from what I've heard. <laughs> oh, it's 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 awesome, man! Like, like like they they did a sequel with that cast with the Silver Surfer, and then they did a reboot with Miles Teller and Michael B. Jordan that was supposed to be horrible. Jamie Bell and Kate. <laughs> Jamie Mara. Bell and Kate Mara. It's yeah, a great cast. I mean, I was always intrigued to watch it, but I mean, no, I haven't. Yeah, the reviews on that one were just disgusting. But Fantastic Four is supposed to be coming into the MCU now, so... See, I'm down with the MCU when it just goes all in for terrible schlock. Like, I that, to me, was fantastic entertainment. Don't try to win Oscars, okay? Be the the BS that you are, and it's en- it's enjoyable, you know? See, that that was pre-MCU, though. That was, yeah, it, that, was. it was pre-MCU. The only reason it's on Disney Plus is because of their purchase of Fox, so... Um, yeah, okay. Well, that's... Fun. Yeah, that might be a good deep dive at some point. Oh, I'd that'd, love to do it. Good. Get Adam on. <laughs> All right, so uh, I've actually got two movies I want to talk about, so I'll start with my anniversary movie, and, and here's your quiz. I don't know if you're going to get this, but uh, it is uh, 20 years old, so 2001. It had a sole Best Original Song nomination. It was one of only two movies that was only a Vanilla nominated Sky. original song. I've seen of Vanilla Sky. Okay. That was the other one that was a, a sole original song nominee. Um, the uh, the person who wrote the song is kind of music royalty at this point. This was his second of four best original song nominations that he has gotten so far. Known by one name. Sting? 
Sting was the writer but of the I song. Don't, I don't know the movie. The song was called Until from Kate and Leopold. Oh, oh nice. Classic. Yeah, yeah, Kate and Leopold. So that's what I watched. So, yeah, Kate and Leopold, uh, written and directed by James Mangold. I mean, apparently there's a thing with him and Hugh Jackman. So, okay. Um, it, starring Hugh Jackman, uh, Meg Ryan, Leah Schreiber. Um, and uh, the, the premise is that Hugh Jackman is a, an, a British royalty who uh, has, in the... 1800s, 1876, who goes to New York to try and find uh, a wealthy, uh, a wealthy wife to bring notoriety to the family, and uh, follows Leah Schreiber into a time portal that drops him into 2001. And uh, I mean, talk about a fish out of water. Hugh Jackman playing an 1870s British royal in modern day New York City, and let all the stereotypes, you know, commence. Um, while he's there, he meets Meg Ryan, who is uh, Leah Schreiber's former uh, former girlfriend, lives near him, and of course, they fall in love. Uh, Brecken Meyer's in it too, who's probably the best part, as he is in almost everything he's in. Uh, he's like the best, the best minor character performer, like of the like 1995 to 2010. Like if he's in a movie, it's He's gonna be one of the one of the highlights of it. Um, it's it's corny. It's it's like I said, fills all the stereotypes of a rom com, fish out of water type of movie. I mean, it, it's it's like a sophisticated George of the Jungle, you can almost say in how in how it portrays uh, it all. However, at the same time, Hugh Jackman is undeniable because he's Hugh Jackman, and him playing British royalty is kind of perfect for him even though at this point all he was known as was known as was wolverine um it, it took me like a half hour into the movie to realize i was watching Sabretooth and wolverine from uh x-men origins wolverine battling it out in a rom-com but they were uh the chemistry between meg ryan and hugh jackman is weird i don't think it necessarily fits uh but you know it, it was it was entertaining uh, two and a half stars it, it could have been a lot worse. I was kind of expecting it to be a lot worse. So, that, that's that's what I'm giving it. Have either of you seen Kate Leopold or remember anything about it? I have not seen it. I saw it in a theater 20 years ago, and I remember absolutely nothing about it. I didn't even know that Sting wrote a song for it or that it got an Oscar nomination. That's amazing. However, listening to your description of it, it sounds like it should be an MCU movie. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there you go. It's it's Thor. Minus the yeah. hammer and the aliens. Yeah, that's, that's they were just what's going on. 15 here. years ahead of time, or 10 years ahead of time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so the other movie I want to talk about, um, I, I usually only mention one, but I, I saw this movie on TCM, and I have to give it a shout-out because it was freaking amazing. So this movie, it's from 1958. It's called I Married a Woman. Uh, it's only got a 5.5 on IMDb out of 10, only 372 votes. Uh, it's on TCM right now. Uh, you should check it out. It's directed by Hal Cantor, written by Goodman Ace, which is a great name. And it stars uh, George Goebel and Diana Doors. Uh, this movie, I, I I watched it on a complete whim, just scrolling through what TCM had to offer. And uh, the the poster had a picture of Diana Doors on it and went, okay, that 
that might be worth watching. And my goodness, is she possibly like the most, most gorgeous woman of that era of film. But this movie is hilarious. It is like everything you want in a great, like, uh, screwball rom-com type of movie. It feels very modern for its time. Uh, George Goebel plays uh, an ad exec named, uh, named Marshall Briggs who is trying to save his ad agency by coming up with one last brilliant idea uh, before uh, their biggest, uh, their biggest uh, account leaves. Uh, and his wife, Janice, played by Diana Doors, is uh, trying to get his attention to let him know that she's pregnant. And he's too distracted by the work he has to do, and she's too distracted by the fact that she's pregnant and can't get his attention and it just leads to a lot of hilarity. Um, and then you add in the fact that um, that her mother lives with them. And it, it falls into a, uh, into a lot of kind of stereotypes, but then also plays with them a little bit too. Uh, George Goebel is outstanding in this. I've never even heard of him before. Apparently, he only starred in two movies, and they were his first two movies. And he made this movie in 1958 and then didn't have another movie for 20 years. And after that, he just had bit parts. But he he makes this movie. He is so funny. He feels almost like um, he has a cadence almost similar to not a voice, but a cadence similar to like Alan Arkin in Glengarry Glen Ross and how he can never fully finish a line before his brain has already moved on to the next thought. And and it's 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 hilarious. It's so funny. Um, there's also a random cameo from uh, from John Wayne that. Uh, uh, in a in a fake movie, like like they go to watch a fake movie starring John Wayne, uh, that it it's it it's all over. But like I said, it it feels modern because of stuff like that, and it's just a lot of fun. So if you wanna if you want a fun movie to watch, uh, it's available on TCM. I don't know how much longer it's available, but I married a woman from 1958. Uh, Zach, I think if you want to earn some brownie points, it's a it's a good date movie. I think. I will definitely have to check it out. I think we need to do another, a round two version of the sub thousand vote movies and yeah. <laughs> maybe this summer. And that sounds like it would make a top spot on your list. Yeah. Four stars. I'm giving four stars. It's that good. It's that good. Hour 25 minutes. It's, it's just a whole lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. You think you know where it's going and then it, it just kind of plays with it a, a lot more than you think it will. And Goodman Ace. Goodman, Goodman Ace. Ace. Yeah, I, I haven't even heard of this guy. Let me look here. What? Have, I looked it up. This is his only movie. This is. And it's a great movie. It is a great movie. And and like yeah, like I said, the guy's hilarious. He he feels like he belongs in modern movies, and it's a shame that he only ever did two. He starred in two movies, his first and second movies, and then did some TV and came back twenty years later in tiny tiny roles so worth checking out i married a woman so there we go all right well let's move on from that into our featured review i love this movie so much i did not really like this film at all this is the most zach movie ever made you gotta see it movie reviews and uh our featured review is another one kind of similar to what we uh talked about uh last week in that it had a tiny 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 release in 2020 
just so it could say it's a 2020 movie and this last or this weekend finally got a release where more of the public could see it and uh, that is Minari. David, look! They're wheels! Wheels? Where are they from? Gibi-ji? What a wonderful day to be in the house of the Lord. If you're here with us for the first time, please stand. What a beautiful family. Glad you're here. How's your daddy like that new farm? He growing things good, doing things right. Yes. 미국애들은 할머니랑 같이 방 쓰는 거 싫어한다던데. Like grandma. Grandma smells like Korea. Yeah. What a good grandma smell. We're here to end this. We need to think about it for our children. We need to see what dad is doing with them. Wow! 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 We need to find water somewhere. If that soil ain't wet, we're gonna lose the crop. Okay. Oh, pretty boy, pretty boy. I'm not pretty. I'm good looking. Uh, available on uh, video on demand, and if you can find it in a theater, it might be available in a theater as well. Um, Zach, I'm gonna go to you first. Tell us all about Minari and what you thought. Okay, so Minari tells the semi-autobiographical story um, of a Korean family, a Korean immigrant family in the United States in the early 1980s, and um, they have resettled not just from Korea, but originally they were in California. Now they've moved to Northwest Arkansas, which is sort of like um, a hub in the Ozarks uh, for um, chicken farming and then also agricultural farming. Interestingly enough, I'm going to Northwest Arkansas next week, which is why I can't be on the podcast next week. So I'll report back to you if the movie's accurate <laughs> in its um, geographical depiction. Um, but anyway... Talk about timing. Yeah, no kidding. Um, the movie stars uh, Stephen Yoon, who's getting a lot of Oscar buzz as Jacob, the patriarch of the family. He's the one who kind of instigates the move to Arkansas, and he has this dream of becoming... Um, opening a great farm, uh, particularly uh, harvesting Korean plants and trying to sell it uh, as a, uh, to Korean horse, uh, wholesalers in like uh, Little Rock and Oklahoma City and these other kind of metropolitan areas in the Southwest. Um, his wife is, pl- is uh, her name is uh, Monica. She's played by um, Yuri Han and she's a lot more skeptical. She thinks that they've actually been able to make it in California. They, they do this work where they, I've never seen this depicted in a movie. I didn't even know this was a real thing where they look at the bottom of chicks and they have to determine whether they're male or female and the females go to the next level to get, you know, nested for their eggs and the males 
get uh let's just say they they get on the chopping block um but anyway uh this is the life that she's at least somewhat satisfied with because uh it it provides enough money for them to be able to um pay uh, you know afford a house and care for their children their two children uh Jacob and or excuse me um David and Mon- uh, and uh Anne um but uh the Stephen Yoon character has a lot more ambitious aspirations and so he wants to open up this farm um quickly you know they discover that the farm the farm life is very hard um it's hard to get uh good um water um the the father character is, is joined in the movie by will Patton, uh, who plays paul a kind of redneck neighbor who's also extremely evangelical religion actually plays an interesting role in this movie um, the family does go to this kind of local Baptist church in, in an attempt to try to be friendly with the people around there. They certainly suffer some some racism, but it's more like kind of latent microaggression type racism. Um, and later in the movie, they invite uh, uh, Monica's mother, um, played in the movie by Yoo Jung Yoon, um, to live with them. Um, this is a movie that uh, has a very leisurely pace. It's not a movie that has huge, um, you know, uh, story arcs or um, points in the story where there's major um, surprises. It's much more kind of um, daily life. Uh, a lot of the movies seen through the perspective of David, the youngest son, and particularly his relationship with his gram- grandma. Um, but there's also at sort of at the center of this movie is is the marriage between um, Jacob and Monica, which is uh, strained by, uh, you know, financial difficulties, difficulties adjusting to this new environment. Their house is literally on this uh, wheel on these wheels um, in the middle of this field, really in the middle of nowhere. And, um, you know, the relationship with the locals in northwest Arkansas, uh, the movie's really um beautiful to look at it's it's well shot um it tells i think a very specific a very specific story of assimilation in in the united states it's interesting this movie's getting some not backlash but there's backlash to the fact that it's being considered a a non-english language movie before it is being considered an american movie which has complicated its categorization in award season um i like the movie i i do wish that I, I guess my two criticisms are I wish that it had focused a little bit more on this on the strained marriage and less so on the young boy and his grandma. I think those scenes we kind of get the feel of them. We've seen them in movies before. They're good performances, but really the heart of this movie is this really complex relationship. Um, these two characters, the husband and wife, don't always say out loud exactly what they're saying or what they're feeling. So a lot of it is sort of um, in the body language and in their tonality, which um, I think creates two really complex and, and nice performances. Um, And then I guess my other criticism is I think the pacing's a little slow at times. It does get going in the final like 30 35 minutes of this movie there are big things that start happening and it kind of made me wonder like had the movie had maybe been a little bit shorter or more um condensed in showing those kind of bigger events i think it would have made for a more fulfilling experience but as it is it's a solid three and a half star movie very enjoyable movie a quiet movie that i think will appeal to um both art house audiences and audiences who are looking for um good good entertainment about the struggles of real people in in, um, you know, very specific uh, situations in terms of culture, in terms of identity and demographics. And uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I hope this movie does well at the Oscars. I think it deserves several nominations. All right. All right. So three and a half from Zach. Todd, how about you go next? Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. I, 
I, I was struck immediately by, it said it was a Plan B and A24 production, and that just kind of tells you everything you need to know. Like, this is a small movie, but those are two of the most creative and powerful studios in the world for prestige product, projects, and it really gives a platform for a really good movie like this. Uh, I think the movie early on kind of looks like the Tree of Life. Like, it's almost got these, like, poetic shots of the landscape, and, like, I, the score going on by... Emil Mosseri is, I, I think, as good of a score as I heard from any 2020 movie. And um, I, I do like that it's told from the point of view of David a lot of the time, because he, he's, like, looking up to his father as being, like, this unapproachable guy doing the most important thing to him, which is make a living. And it, that really says something about the dynamics of, and uh, about how, how he views himself as a, as a, as a person and needing to provide for his family like that. I think the performances are all great. Yeah, like, Steven Yoon should be nominated. Uh, Yoon, Yoon Yoon is uh, definitely the scene stealer as the grandma. The kids are great, but Yeri Han, I feel like, is the standout in the movie. She is so subtle, and she just, like, breaks your heart uh, at, at times. There's one particular um, scene near the end where uh, they sort of have a, 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 a fight, and she just is heartbreaking to watch. I, I like that it's methodical, but it's not slow. It's like it's like touching and heartfelt, but it's not corny. It's it's like pleasant to watch, but it does have like tough lessons and confrontations. It's not melodramatic, but it's still it's still kind of sad. And I actually think it is really funny. Like David and Soonja are like the most adorable uh, grandparent grandchild relationship that I've seen since like Little Miss Sunshine. It it's uh. It's, it looks beautiful, the vibrant colors, really rich dialogue. I don't. I like that it doesn't reinvent the wheel or try to, but it still isn't obvious to watch. It isn't flashy, it's not political, it just feels real, and it's kind of hopeful. I think it's the most American movie of 2020, and uh, I would have no problem if this was the Best Picture winner. I'm giving it three and a half stars as well. It comes in at number 14 of the year for me right now, but I mean, it could move up in time. All right, so three and a half from Zach, three and a half from Todd... Three and a half from me. Uh, I'm right there with with you guys, Todd. I'm I, I like that you mentioned uh, Little Miss Sunshine because I was thinking the grandma character is like a combination of Zhao Shuzhen from The Farewell and Alan Arkin from Little Miss Sunshine. Like if you smash those two together, you get this grandma. Um, yeah. In that and in, in that she's she's uh, she's cut like new to the country, but also she has and new to the culture that's being presented. But at the same time. She's very brash and opinionated, and uh, there, there's a whole lot of Alan Arkin, Abigail Breslin in the in the yeah. relationship between the two of them. Uh, but yeah, going along with a lot of, a lot of what you guys said, um, it I I found it fascinating how um, it didn't fall for the trope of being uh, overly like racist or stereotypical. Um, it just kind of felt real. Like Zach, you said there, there's a lot of little micro micro racism in there which it is i mean is, is bound to happen especially in that setting but there's no uh, it you're, you're waiting for that moment of okay where when's the hate crime gonna happen and that that's not what it's about and it's not a struggle uh between people it's a struggle uh between like this family and the american dream and and that and no person gets in their way it's just the the life of these people and i found that fascinating at the same time it kind of made it a little slow because it was hard to find the conflict in as easily as it is in other movies 
Um, and so that that's like one of the few things holding it back from being a true masterpiece. Uh, it, but it it's it it was such a great movie and uh, fascinating movie to watch. And and yeah, it is a very American movie. And I I think a lot of the people who are having issues with the award stuff are just really just looking for ways to have issues with stuff. And the Golden Globes foreign category ha- does have some issues, but it is a foreign language category. And that's why this is primarily in a foreign language. The problem with the Golden Globes is more that if you not, are nominated in foreign language film, you can't be nominated for Best Picture. That's the real issue. Um, it's not the fact, I mean, according to their standards, this is a movie that's not in English. Therefore, it qualifies for that category. So I, I don't have an issue as much with that as I do with you can't. I mean, it's Parasite would have won Best Picture at the Golden Globes last year, but it couldn't because it won foreign language film. That's well, where I, well, one I thing I saw was that it has about the same amount of English in the movie as Inglorious Bastards did, and that was still considered for Best Picture Drama. That's a valid point. That's a valid point. So something I'll take up with you, Todd, because I feel like we need to disagree about something, right? Um, I didn't like the I didn't like the music in this movie. I thought it was weird. It 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 kind of made the movie feel like out of place and almost like overly sentimental at times. And it sounded like I read this in, I think it was uh, the RogerEbert.com review. It said that it sounded like it was played on an out of tune piano, which I would agree. So um, I, but you know, I, I mean, th- yeah, I do agree though with the Terrence Malick analogy. I mean, you could take like definitely some screen stills of this movie, like particularly with Steven Yeun, like looking at the dirt. There's definitely also a little bit of like Jean de Florette in this movie. I thought that this movie was like a mixture. If we're going to, mash two movies together would be John de Florette meets in America, which is maybe the strangest mixture you, with, with a Korean cast, uh, which is a really Directed strange... Directed by Terrence Malick. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, though. I mean, to, to me, yeah, I, I think a lot of critics are picking up on, on the relationship between Graham, the, the, the grandma character and, and the grandson, but to me, it's like, I don't know. I kind of... I, like, we saw that in Little Miss Sunshine. We saw that in The Farewell to a certain extent. We've seen that before. I thought that I wish this movie had almost like not shown the kids at all. I think that that like there's a lot of intros- introspective sort of um, complex negotiation between these two adult characters. Obviously, that's not what the movie was was trying to do. But like, there's this really good um, uh, French movie in the late '80s called Chocolat, not the Juliette Binoche movie, but there's it's uh, by Claire Denis, and sort of a, I, I was reminded of that movie watching this movie too about um, that movie is about a white family that goes to Africa and uh, starts a farm, but it's really about how they go to Africa to almost um, try to repair the parents' relationship, uh, and it really doesn't work that well at all. And I felt like in this movie, that was the more interesting story. Um, but I also understand that that the, the director, uh, Lee Isaac Chung, it, you know, it's autobiographical, so maybe he is at a distance from those parent characters. But uh, I absolutely agree, though, with, with your analysis that Steven Yeun and Yuri Han are phenomenal in this movie. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the the thing with the telling it from the point of view of the kid was also something that reminded me of The Tree of Life, because, like, a lot of that movie, mm-hmm. it's not about Brad Pitt, it's about the kid and his father, and I, I think that, uh, I think the dynamic there works as well, but, yeah, I mean, I, I was, I, I guess I was more interested in the parents as well. I, yeah. I didn't, I didn't mind the, the dynamic of, of seeing it from the kid's, kid's point of view, and, I, I don't know, it brings, it brings, um, uh, a little more of the the innocence of it to it, I think, of of focusing on on them, which I feel like this is kind of what it was 
what it was going for too is is this feels like a very innocent story of the struggle to to achieve the american dream so why does why does will Patton like help steven yoon i i guess maybe i missed that part like he he's a korean war vet and so feels that connection to him i that that's the only thing right, but he's saw. not getting he's not getting paid though right no no i think i think that's it's just he's the odd eccentric you know guy struggling war vet that's struggling with stuff and finds a purpose in 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 that family uh, yeah I, I found his character fascinating because because of some of what you said and it's one of the first times I've seen Will Patton not play Will Patton yeah is movie. it his best yeah. movie <laughs> it yes. might, it might, yeah. I think it might be his best I was thinking that early on I was like this, this has got to be his best movie right I mean like <laughs> He's he's brilliant in this, he, and he brings something different that I've never seen from him. And uh, and again, it it, it it's just a every, it's such a good movie. Like like everyone in this movie, you can tell every single character has the best intentions, and and you don't see that in a movie very often. And and it's great to see that that everyone has the best intentions, and it's just a struggle of people trying to live their lives. And not have to worry about who's attacking their life. Well, that's the best and worst thing about the movie too, because in in the way that it, I think some some folks might find this movie to be very leisurely paced, and there's not a lot of you know dramatic, uh, you know, drug addiction or affairs or you know murders. I mean, this is a movie that is very much grounded in the reality of what uh, Lee Isaac Chung's family must have gone through to some extent. So, um, I don't know. I, I like. Yeah, it's meditative and, and reflective and interesting, but I like I said in my review, when 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 the dramatic points and beats do start in this story, it's like more interesting. But you know, I'm an ugly American audience, so. So Todd, you said it was 14th on yeah, uh yeah, 14th. yeah, it 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 just cracks my top 20. So, so that's where it's out on my list. So. So I sounds like I liked it the most. Potentially, potentially. I think Zach's trying to nitpick so we can we can have some sort of disagreement because never are we like this much in agreement on a on a movie of saying yeah it was it was great it was great. I have it as my number three of twenty twenty one. There we go. Now we'll start an argument. <laughs> now we're talking. Now we're talking. Okay. All right. Well, uh, thrice approved though. Thrice approved. And uh, yeah, it. It's kind of hard if if you got theaters open, you might be able to find it. Um, I think it was playing at one or two theaters within a fifty mile radius of where I'm at, but um, it's uh, available for the twenty dollar rental on uh, all the streaming platforms. So, so it sounds like this is the movie along with Nomadland that we're most enthusiastic about that has a realistic shot of a Best Picture nomination, right? Most, that collectively, most universally, yeah. yeah, collectively enthusiastic. I would say that's probably fair. Wait, what? For the three of us? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, I mean, that's Sound of Metal, right? Well, sure. I, I don't know how... I guess, I guess yeah. It's getting nominated so those... for Best Picture, for sure. It's, I mean, it's not going to win, but it's definitely getting nominated. Oh, I don't know about that. I wouldn't say yeah, for sure I, at all. I, I don't know if that's a lock. I don't know I don't know if Minari's a lock either, though. I, I think Nomadland is a lock. Nomad, yeah. And, and, and it, it would not surprise me to see Minari or Sound of Metal left out. But... Agreed. Minari is but, a lock too. I I don't know what you're talking about. That's gotten me in at every spot it needs to. 
All right. It it did get didn't it get the uh, the ensemble SAG nomination too? Yeah. But that doesn't mean quite as much anymore. And it's like the Anointed Spirit Award nominee too. It had six nominations, three acting nominations. I I I don't think that that's that out of the possibility for Oscars too. All right. All right. Well, maybe it's a stronger contender than I than I thought. But all right. Well, it it is one of the one of the more uh, universally loved by us that is definitely going for that top spot okay cool so thrice approved on minari let's move on into our uh our power rankings here you can't top that yeah that's the movie about the horse i'm gonna pull an audible at the last minute here that's because i haven't seen it power rankings not including fargo can't choose fargo ever again and zach you won our game last time. You got to pick the category, and uh, I, I feel—I have a feeling this is going to be a controversial category, and there's going to be a lot of uh, arguments over what qualifies and what what doesn't. Um, well, yeah, maybe that's, those are the best maybe a little rankings. more than uh, maybe a little—not quite as much as cop movie like last time, but anyways, yeah. Tell us what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, cop movie, obviously, just, you know, that is laden with argument right there. Uh, this one is top, mo- well, I, okay, I named this one the Beatrice Strait Power Rankings. Beatrice Strait, for those of you uninformed out there, um, is uh, the be- was the Best Supporting Actress winner in 1976 for her 5-minute and 40-second role in the movie Network, in which she plays uh, William Holden's um, scorned wife, and she's in one scene of the movie where he reveals that he's been having an affair and is leaving her. And uh, it was such a good, she was so good in that scene that she won an Oscar and was never heard from again. Although I think she was in Poltergeist. Anyway, in the spirit of um, Beatrice Strait, uh, we're looking for uh, performances that take place in five minutes and 40 seconds or under. I said, what's, what's so complicated about that? What's complicated about it is for a lot of these performances, you have to watch the movie to find out if it's five minutes or forty seconds. Well, I'm, I'm not going to be too I'm not going to be too strict about the five minute and forty second, <laughs> but I guess we'll we'll have to see. And if it really was a memorable short performance, it probably is on YouTube in its completion. So, but still, it took it took some research. Definitely, definitely took research. All right. Well, um, I have a feeling you guys are going to hate my list, but I'm going to go with it anyways. Um, I'll go first. Number five. So. Yeah, this was this is kind of like a, a mix of like cameos with just kind of memorable moments and some that are going to be definitely pushing the boundary of what constitutes five minutes and forty seconds. But we'll see how it goes. Number number five on my list, and it's one of my favorite movies of all time, and I rarely ever get to mention it. And I thought of a, something from it that I can mention for this one. So uh, this is the performance of Darren Healy as the heroin addict in Once. This is like the first mm, scene of the movie. Good call. Yeah, this is like the first scene of the movie where you have uh, Glenn Hansard. He's sitting there, or he's standing on the side of the on the on the street playing his guitar. He's got his guitar case out there, and uh, and this guy just starts walking up and he's kind of dancing to the music a little bit. And while he's dancing to the music, he Glenn Hansard sees him. He's like, uh-uh, no, no. And he steals his guitar case. And then they chase. He chases him through Dublin, trying to find or trying to track him down. And then finally gets him. Ends up giving him the money anyways because he said, if you wanted it that bad, you just had to ask. 
and uh anyways it's a memorable moment it's a memorable performance it it's it's kind of a, a funny part but more importantly it's one of my all-time favorite movies and i can mention it so number five is uh the heroin addict in once i didn't even know he was billed as the heroin addict that's not very clear in the movie but that's how he's billed so yeah what's great about that scene is you get the sense that like this is a reoccurring occurrence like he just probably <laughs> does this every day and um you know i it, they have they just have fun doing it and what i love about that scene too is it looks so bad like that's such a great opening scene for the movie because you think like what am i watching a student movie like this looks like it was shot for like ten dollars on like handheld consumer cameras and um it yeah it, it yeah exactly it was <laughs> and it's one of the greatest movies of all time so it's it's a great way to open the movie yeah it's also it's one a of the great best songs uh in the movie too well yeah i mean every song in that movie is a masterpiece all right, uh, we're going to go Todd next. All right, so I found this list pretty hard because, I mean, the ones that would stand out would be, like, Alec Baldwin and Glenn Gary, Glenn, Glenn Ross, but that that is even, like, significantly over five minutes. So, I mean, it really is, like, extended cameos, sort of, which is, makes it a, a really hard list to come up with, stuff that's not just, like, stuff from your favorite movies. So I kind of did that with my number five, which is Christopher Guest and A Few Good Men. Which, because his, his scene has always been one of my favorites in that movie, and I, I feel like a court scenes could give a lot of uh, performances that could be considered for this list, and this one is always a standout. He's just like, I, I guess it, it defines that whole thing where it's like comedic actors are better than dramatic actors just because comedy is harder, and he is so good in this. He has this intense stare on his face while he's saying, you know, that Santiago was absolutely poisoned while he's basically being threatened by Kathy. I... I, it, it's a great scene, and it's always it's it's a really powerful scene as well, and it, and it leads to probably the biggest fight in the movie right right after that. Uh, but yeah, Christopher Guest and a few good man. That's my number five. The 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 least Christopher Guest Christopher Guest performance of all time. Yeah. Like it took forever for me to realize out who that was. All right. Good choice, Zach. Number five. Yeah, I don't remember that role at all. I'd have to look go back. He's the doctor. It. Yeah, he's, okay. the, he's like the medical examiner. I was actually thinking about, um, yeah, co- some courtroom scenes with, with memorable characters. I mean, I mean, I think, like, um, one of the great examples would have to be, like, Judy Garland, right? In, uh, um, oh, yeah. Uh, Judgment well, in Nuremberg? But Judgment in Nuremberg, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I would bet that scene was longer than five minutes, but, yeah, yeah, something like that. Okay, so what I tried to do with my list is, as I, I thought of a lot, I, I had a fun time doing this, but the problem I was having, I was coming up with a lot of names, but a lot of them just ended up being Big Tim Amazing Larry High Roller performances, right? Like, they were just flashy characters. So what I tried to do on my list is none of them could be Amazing Larry Big Tim High Roller Award. I, I, it had to be about the performance and not about the colorful characters. So, for example, Alfred Molina and Boogie Nights couldn't do it i mean that's that's the ultimate big you know amazing larry award um i also well i'll I'll give a couple honorable mentions maybe later that qualifies that so i had to go for more mainstream characters um anyway so uh what i started with was number five my number five pick is uh gene jones from no country for old men he is the gas station attendant and he is the one who plays (laughs) off the scene with uh javier bardem and uh, I mean, talk. I mean, he's maybe the highest, well, one of the highest wars in that movie too. But you know, the reason I pick it, him, I, I mean, Javier Bardem is amazing in that scene. That's probably the scene that won him the Oscar. But Gene Jones, 
that's an incredible performance that um, he will be known for the rest of his life. I mean, he is the gas station guy with Javier Bardem in that scene. And his look of just like, sir, excuse me, it, it gradually goes from like, you know, normal every day to like, uh, what you know, get the, I got to close the shop. This guy is crazy to like totally uh, just freaked out. And um, he does it mostly like with his eyes, with very little dialogue. Um, it's it's an incredible performance that gets overlooked um, because it's only one scene in the movie and because everybody remembers Javier Bardem. But those reaction shots are what make Javier Bardem all the more menacing in that scene. So I don't know what he's ever done anything. I, I mean, I feel like the Coen brothers are masters of the five, the Beatrice Strait type scene, and he's one of the best. That's a good call. That's a good call. I like that one. And he's not the he's not the amazing Larry Big Tim Award winner. I mean, I feel like we know about his life for the most part. There are other other candidates from that movie. Okay, all right. I'm switching up something here because I Ooh, I, I decided audible. I'm pulling an audible. Well, I decided one of mine really probably shouldn't qualify, so I'm gonna take him off. I I couldn't find exactly how much, but how much he's in, but it's definitely more than more than the allotted time. I think so. I'm going to pull an audible. And... Yeah, I mean, I think the spirit of the award is that Beatrice Strait was only in one scene in the movie, so it's it right. should be primarily based on uh, around one scene. <clears throat> that okay, doesn't qualify so... for my list. <laughs> well, that's okay. I'm not strict about it. But... So my number four, then, uh, this is the one that makes my list because the other one didn't, uh, is probably the, I don't know, maybe the only one that you could truly consider a cameo in uh in my list uh and when when the whole world falls apart and uh and everything is going sideways and it seems like everyone has in the world has has died or has become a zombie the only one that's able to find a way to survive is bill murray and so my number four is bill murray in zombie land um it's been a long time since I've seen this movie, but I always remember Bill Murray in Zombieland, and it's like one of the greatest cameos of of that decade. As as the the crew is going along, Jesse Eisenberg and Woody Harrelson and Emma Stone and Abigail Breslin, and they find Bill Murray, and I think at, even at one point he he finds his way, he's able to to hide because he does his makeup looking like a zombie, if I remember that right. And so that's how he's able to survive in some way. Um, the the post credit scene in in Zombieland is hilarious too. Uh, that involves him. I, it's it's ridiculous and awesome. And that movie is is just great. But yeah, Bill Murray Zombieland. If you're talking cameo, like under five minute cameo, that actually has something to do. Like he's more than just a cameo too. He has something to do. You, you gotta you gotta go with that. So he's my number four. That's a good one. All right, Todd, number four. All right, so one thing I did, I since we did a uh, Tarantino minor character kind of power ranking, I decided to only go with one uh, from his movies because, I mean, otherwise it could just be littered with Tarantino characters. So my number four it was actually my number one on that list, which is Michael Parks in Kill Bill Volume 2 as Esteban <laughs> Vajeo. Cause, oh, it's Esteban. Yeah. Not the other one. Not the sheriff. No, he that was the Kibble Volume 1. Oh, okay. okay. But, uh, yeah, so 
I, I mean, his accent is just ridiculous, and it's but it's also amazing. Like uh, that scene is sort of pivotal in, in the movie, and he just like is toying with Beatrix the whole time, and like trying to seduce her almost into working for him. And I, I think he, I think he's amazing in that movie, and it's nothing like him playing Earl McGraw. Like he, it is, it, it's just a great out, outside the box casting and and just terrific performance. Michael Parks is a, is a is a true gem in movies and. I think that's my favorite thing he's done. That is a genius call. Absolutely love that. It it also would make like if we if we ever do a top five compliments ever played played in movies, when he says you would have been my number one lady, which would be my <laughs> greatest movie compliment of all time. That's a good uh, call. I like it. I like it. All right, Zach, number four. Okay, uh, my number four pick is only on screen for two minutes. I actually counted, and it's actually only one shot. The camera never cuts away, so eat that. Um, it is from the movie, my number two movie of the decade, Two Days, One Night, which also has a number of great kind of single scene performances, so I knew I had to pick one from that. Uh, the this actor I'm going to choose, his name is Timur... Oh boy, Magomedgadziev, something like that. I don't know. Um, but basically, he is, if you know the movie, which Terry doesn't because he hasn't seen it, um, it is the scene where Marion Cotillard goes to the soccer field and tries to find uh, the her co-worker who is uh, actually roughing uh, his kid's soccer game. And um, when she confronts him, he breaks down into tears and talks about um, how ashamed and guilty he feels about what he did to her. And then he kind of talks about some of the nice things that she had done for him in the past and how he has to basically live with himself for the horrible decision that the company made him make. Um, I mean, my goodness, this guy is like, I, you know, he's not maybe a non-professional actor. He's really only in that scene. He does appear very briefly at the end of the movie, too, at the culmination at, at the end. But um, it's it's a, also a pivotal moment in the movie because it's kind of up to that point. Marion Cotillard has not had a whole lot of success doing what she's trying to do in the movie. Um, but he uh, gives her that success and he gives her that confidence to keep going and, and go on to other people and try to convince them to uh, vote for her job instead of the raise. So um, it's an incredible and powerful moment about redemption and guilt and embarrassment. And uh, he, he all con conveys it in his face in, in one single take by the Dardenne brothers. It's a genius, genius performance. I can't say I remember that character. That's okay. That's... I didn't remember your character either, so. <laughs> it's on YouTube, so there's that. Like a lot of these scenes probably are. All right. On to my number three. So my number three is is, is a, a modern man. He, he is one that, that is, is up with the times. Uh, I mean... Mick Jagger's not going to be doing this when he's 60, so you got to be thinking about that. Mm -hmm. Because of this man, there was a band flying over Tupelo, Mississippi, about to die. It is Jimmy Fallon as Dennis Hope in Almost Famous. Um, it, it, it's, it's kind of a great turning point in the movie, and it's all brought about by that moment where you go, hey, is that Jimmy Fallon? Uh, because that's really what happens in that moment, and, and he, he's the guy, he's the record producer who comes along and says hey you gotta we gotta modernize this tour we gotta do more stops we gotta promote this in a different way we gotta start uh start taking the private jet he's able to give his his trademark Mick Jagger impression while he gives that I ironic line 
Um, and then he's on. The only other time you see him is he's on the plane when they uh, when they have their their massive meltdown. So uh, so it, it's 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 an iconic moment by a guy who doesn't have a whole lot of iconic moments in film, but uh, is is a great performer. So Jimmy Fallon, almost famous, my number three. Yeah, I, I wrote down come, that one. I was trying to come up with ones that were under five minutes for that movie, and I'm sure that's got to be more than five minutes. But uh, it depends it, it, on your definition, though. Like, he's maybe on screen for more than five minutes, but does he have yeah. dialogue? I mean... Yeah, he's because, got one scene, and then he's just in the background on the plane. Well, well he then says does, that he, he ran goes over to New York in Dearborn, right? Michigan and never... Oh, yeah, 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 there is that. Yeah, it does have that one line. <laughs> uh... It's a good All pick, right. though, because it is the best thing he ever did on film. I could have picked him in Band of Brothers. That, that's that's under five minutes. He was in Band of Brothers? Yeah, yeah. he's in Band of Brothers for like wow. 30 seconds. That See, I have a hard time seeing. But... We, we, ha- we, we, we still have to figure out how we're hey, going to do our deep dive of Band of Brothers. The day we do the deep dive on Band of Brothers is going to be after the day we do the deep dive on the Decalogue. That's, that is my uh, negotiation. All right, all right. For compromise. That, that's fair. That's fair. All right. Todd, number three. Uh, my number three uh, is Linda Cardellini in Brokeback Mountain. I think she's, like, the most underrated part of that movie. She she shows up, and she's engaging. She's, like, trying to give a, like, get a foot massage from Ennis or something like that. And But she's, like, she's charming. She sort of, like, ha- has this thing with him for a bit. And then I think she's in, like, three really short scenes. But... Like, for me, like, she's a standout. Like, uh, she has a scene at the, uh, her third scene, like, she she finds him and she, like, tries to tell him that she actually was in love with him and he doesn't understand love. Like, she's just a really good actress and that is really sort of a heartbreaking scene. And I, I, I think she's got to get her due at some point. Like, she's been in two Oscar heavyweights. Like, she had this and Green Book and she's never singled out, like, ever. And that's a shame because I think she's a great actress. And this is, uh, this is a really good performance that is a really brief one, but... All right, all right. I mean, it's a good call. can't argue with that. It's a good call. Yep. Good call. All right, Zach, number three. All right, I have to break my rule for my number three, my self-imposed rule. Uh, not surprising. Well, it's definitely a performance under five minutes, but it would be definitely a big Tim Amazing Larry Award winner if oh, we were okay. ever deep dive this movie. I thought you were breaking yeah. the rule. That no, 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 no. It's definitely under five minutes. Don't, don't worry about that. Um, it's a movie we should deep dive someday. Um, it is uh, Ernie Mongold as the fortune teller in Before Sunrise. Uh, nice. I love that scene. She's amazing in it. I mean, who the hell is this lady? She's like walking around in these big robes. It's, I, I look, I made this list in part because of that performance. And then when I put on this, I, obviously she's the big Tim Amazing Larry Award winner from that movie. You want to know more about this person's life. And it's like the most colorful role in a movie that is really just based on two characters. But her, I mean, the way that she talks to Julie Delpy in that scene and then walks away and says, well, you are stardust. We are all stardust. And then they laugh at her. And then, you know, Ethan Hawke makes fun of her for two minutes after. Like, that's, that's a great performance. And, um, you know, anyone who's ever, like, uh, you know, hung out in Prague or, or you know, wherever, um, you probably run across people like that. So it, 
I don't know if she's ever done anything else, but kudos to Rick for finding that lady and incorporating her in the story. I was hoping she'd be com coming back in Before Midnight, but... There's probably a lot of Richard Lighter characters, like the, the gas station guy in, in Days of Confused would qualify. <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah. You, you just gave me a, a, new, uh, a new one on my honorable mentions that I'll have to mention. I'll have to... Well, Rick Rick has a lot of great one scene characters too, so he's a treasure trove of that. It 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 was it wasn't uh, the connection to Linkletter that oh, like, okay. gave me the honorable mention. I'll, I'll mention it later. Number two on my list is a a very iconic performance. Um, I would say if you're gonna pick a another performance under five minutes that deserved an Oscar nomination uh, or maybe even a win, it could have been this one. Um, and it, I mean, for everything he went through, keeping that watch of his ass, uh, Christopher Walken as, uh, as Captain Coons in Pulp Fiction has to qualify, um, in a movie filled with iconic moments and iconic characters out of nowhere comes Christopher Walken and has this one scene where he talks about bringing this watch home to, to his buddy's boy. And then he disappears again. And, and it is, it is the most random, but amazing thing that got thrown into the middle of a Tarantino movie, possibly in, a, a, out of any of his movies. Uh, and, uh, and I had to mention it. I had to be on my list. So, uh, number two is Christopher Walken in Pulp Fiction. I mean, it, it's it's if I feel like it's a low hanging fruit, but I had to go with it. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's there for a reason. Now, is his scene better in Pulp Fiction or True Romance? Now, the True Romance scene goes well past five minutes, so that it disqualifies it for this category. But that is also an amazing scene as well. I feel like there's several in True Romance that are almost like qualified for this list. <laughs> Gandolfini and Hopper. Gary like Oldman. Yeah, Oldman. Yeah, I think that I was seen over. True Romance. What? I seen it. That's weird. Wow, really? Yeah. Well, it, it was well, only what? But do you know the scene ago? that I'm talking about in True Romance with nope. Christopher Walken? You've nope. never seen that scene? Wow, no. okay, so we're going to keep your virgin eyes just closed. You need to watch that movie just for that scene. And Tarantino has great commentary about that scene on YouTube. Um, it's, it's, I mean, non Kill Bill, non Jackie Brown, not in Pulp Fiction, probably my favorite Tarantino scene. Had to put okay. on all those qualifiers. Yeah. <laughs> Not like the opening in Glorious Bastards or anything like that. Uh, I, think out, it's, I think it's better than the opening in Glorious if Bastards. If you take out half of it's Tarantino's films, it's... It, it's <laughs> yeah, but, well, it's better than but, anything in The Hateful Eight but, or, what's that or called Once Upon a Time they, Hollywood. When they want to... Like, golf tournaments, when they want to give more more trophies out, they give, like, a, an award to the best of the bottom half. That, that's like what, what he's talking about. This is okay. the best scene of the bottom half of Tarantino's filmography. Okay, I'll rephrase it. It is the best Tarantino scene in a non-Tarantino directed movie. There we go. So that makes it even worse. Dusk till dawn. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It... Okay. 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 I mean, Terry has to watch it. He has to I, I, see I, it for himself. Apparently, he doesn't even know I'm talk what we're talking about. Dennis Hopper's I, in it too, and Gandolfini. I mean, it, it, it's it's an amazing scene. In in my head, I always get uh, True Romance and Natural Born Killers kind of mixed up because they came out around the same time. They all, both kind of had some some production issues of writer director uh, stuff, and uh, but I watched Natural Born Killers a couple years ago when Todd maybe watched it. 
for this. I remember your review of it. And there was a really nice um, nod to True Romance in Euphoria in the Halloween episode. Todd maybe knows what I'm talking about, but there's a character who dresses up like Patricia Arquette in that movie. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, okay. I remember that now. <laughs> We're going right. off the deep dive here. Let's, we let's, are. Let's get back we are on track. Off the deep dive. <laughs> Definitely off the deep dive. Uh, we are off the deep dive. <laughs> and it's not even a deep dive episode. Uh, <laughs> Todd, number two. Uh, my number two is Mickey Rourke in Animal Factory. And this was the first thing I thought of when I heard the category. Uh, he plays the Edward Furlong's character's cellmate, Jan the actress, and he's in full drag. Like, it, it, his voice is, like, slightly off Mickey Rourke, but his scene is just the highlight of an otherwise pretty forgettable movie. It's directed by Steve Buscemi. Uh, he has this, like, roundabout way of, like, giving advice to his character, and but then you could tell he's also somewhat tortured inside. This was about as big of a role as Rourke could get at the time. This came out in, like, 2000. And, but he absolutely owns in this scene. And uh, just seeing him in drag is shocking, but that, that character has a lot more depth than it probably actually called for. And, yeah, I mean, I know he had a similar thing in, like, The Pledge around that time. But, yeah, Mickey Rourke and Animal Factory. First thing I thought of. That's my number two. Yeah. Okay. Never <laughs> heard of that movie. And, uh, yeah... You stumped us, Todd. Congratulations. I knew I would. All right. Zach, number two. Okay, my number two performance comes at uh, the beginning of this movie and I think sets sort of the tone for um, the rest of it, I guess, shall we say. And that is um, also one of the great unexpected performances of all time, Donnie Wahlberg in The Sixth Sense. Uh, Ooh, he, good call. Yes, he's only in the first few minutes of the movie. It might run a little over five minutes. Maybe I, I didn't time that perfectly. But um, it is definitely only one scene in the movie. His character's name is Vincent Gray, and uh, he has lived this tortured life as a schizophrenic. Uh, and he was never cured of his illness um but not just a schizophrenic obviously someone who's also you know con connecting with uh with the ghost spirits um and he he just does an amazing job of being so tortured and just so like um you know ravaged with um you know anxiety and depression and um his the way his, his body i mean he's like anorexic in the scene too um it's a chilling scene and obviously it's it, it's so such a great scene because it, it, it impacts you right away, but you're never really sure what the connection is for the rest of the movie, obviously, until the end of the movie, and it's just a great sort of um, bookend to it. So, um, uh, you know, coming from an actor that we don't often associate, if we're going back to, like, you know, Jimmy Fallon a little bit, Donnie Wahlberg, we don't always think great, great acting chops, but that is the one scene that will define his entire career in a great movie, and it helps, I think, set up maybe, you know, the greatest surprise ending of all time. That that is a great choice. I I I still think when I think Donnie Wahlberg though I think um, Carwood Lipton and Band of Brothers once again. So you gotta see Band of Brothers. Yeah, I know Todd's not a fan of The Sixth Sense, but can you at least acknowledge that he's pr pretty amazing in that opening sequence? Yeah, I mean I I came across that in researching for this, but no, I I mean yeah, I mean I suppose maybe it's his best acting. I don't know. All right, time to go to number one. Number one on my list. All right, I know this is over, 
the five minutes and forty seconds. I, I looked oh, up. Oh, you're cheating! I think the I think it's the only one. the only real scene, and it's a six minute and twenty second clip on on uh, YouTube. So it's forty seconds over. You had one um, job, man. If, one job. And, and and I'm gonna but I'm gonna go with it because this actually was a Golden Globe nominated performance. Um, and it is, I, I'm pretty sure it's just that one scene, unless you count his dance number over the closing credits. And that is Tom Cruise in Tropic Thunder as Les Grossman. Uh, when I was thinking about, you know, one scene performances, it, nothing was more surprising than seeing an overweight, balding movie producer uh, come out of nowhere and uh, and dominate an entire movie in one scene. I mean, the the movie has so much... It, the movie is hilarious. It's got so much going on for it. And then Tom Cruise shows up as Les Grossman. I, I mean, it is... And if you haven't noticed it in a while, Bill Hader is his assistant, which just adds to the whole thing, too. No, I mean, this is... This might be the, the best acting Tom Cruise has ever done, simply because it is the least Tom Cruise thing he has ever done. Uh, and it, it, even if it might be cheating a little bit, it had to be on my list, and it's not cheating by a lot. So, number one. And, like I said, it was award-nominated. Golden Globe-nominated performance for six minutes and 20 seconds and a closing credits dance number. I mean, come on now. Well, and they, there was, like, circulating a, an idea for a spinoff for the longest time. And that's when you know you got an iconic character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For a six-minute performance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it totally deserves a spinoff. I would love to see that. Even though it would probably suck. <laughs> probably. So I'm sorry for cheating a little bit, Zach, but I think it was worth it. It was very predictable. Let's just put it that way. I, I knew Tom Cruise would have to make your list at some point. All right, Todd, number one. So when I came up with this, it was the easiest pick I, I had. Uh, it's about three minutes long, and it is absolutely gut-wrenching in the absolutely most gut-wrenching movie. And it is Steve Buscemi in The Messenger. He just has, like, those couple minutes, but he, he like, just hears that his son died, He's he, and he just starts berating the messengers, like, asking them why they aren't the ones dying out in the... Uh, overseas, and he points at the tree that is that was planted the day his son was born, and he spits on Ben Foster's character, and he just like explodes emotionally, but he never got quite goes over the top. It's the it's the best acting that I think Buscemi has ever done, and I I I mean I guarantee that one scene got him some like Oscar votes back uh, back in two thousand nine. It's a it's a brilliant movie, and that is the the best and hardest to watch scene, and uh, yeah, it's a crime that he still has no Oscar nomination, but that that absolutely was his his crowning achievement. If he had a couple more scenes, maybe he would have gotten one. But yeah, The Messenger, Steve Buscemi, easy choice. All right, all right. That's a good call. That's a good call. I, I have a Steve Buscemi performance on my honorable mentions, but it's not that one. You remember that scene, cheating. though, right? I remember that scene. Now that you say it, I remember that. That scene just, like, rips your heart out. That, that, oh, that's a... Yeah. Well, and, and, and movies like that are perfectly built for for a category like this, where it's it, the main characters interact with a bunch of different people for just short snippets. Like, I thought about trying to go with, like, someone from, like, Up in the Air, one of those first people in that montage mm -hmm. of people getting fired. Because yeah. that, that's another great, great thing to kind of make it all happen. 
But um, yeah, so that 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 that's a great call. All right, Zach, number one. All right, so um, you know, Terry will like this analogy. Movies are like a baseball game, right? Sometimes you get a blowout. Sometimes you get a boring defensive game. Sometimes you get, uh, you know, something unexpected. If in the in the world of movies being a baseball game, if you're protecting the lead at the end of the game, you bring in your closer. You bring in someone who is going to shut down those three, four, five batters in the bottom of the ninth inning and seal the victory. My number one pick is the Mariano Rivera of closers in a movie. She is in the last scene of this movie, which otherwise is a good movie, maybe not a great movie, and she elevates it to greatness. And that is Vanessa Redgrave at the end of Atonement. She plays the grown-up version of the Shearsha Ronan character. Hasn't been in the movie at all up to that point. In fact, we don't even comprehend that she could be at the end of the movie because it is a flash forward to the end of the movie and she provides this stunning revelation in the movie that I will not reveal but basically that the what we thought we had seen was not exactly the way that things really turned out and it is completely conveyed in this monologue that she has where basically she's staring right at the camera she is like naked and vulnerable in all of her wrinkles and all of her gray hair. It's a very bold thing for an older actress to do. And she even does kind of resemble the Shearsha Ronan character a little bit, even in her old age. And, uh, you know, the movie, I know Todd's not a huge fan of this movie. I, I was, it was in my top list of 2007. Um, and uh, the biggest thing that I remember about the movie is that scene. It is an incredible scene because of the delivery of that speech. And I think it would be very hard to find another actor that could deliver it in, in a way that she does in the format that the that Joe Wright and, and Ian, uh, Ian, Ian McEwen arranged in that movie. And uh, it's the Mariana Rivera. It's the, great, the greatest closing performance ever. And she's only in five minutes of it. That's a, that's a great comparison. It, yeah, you, you need someone to close out your movie. Vanessa Who's it going to be? Vanessa yeah. Redgrave. It's got to be. I mean, she's not, you know, she's not Eric Roberts. I mean, I'm sorry, but she's the next best thing. I don't think you could put Eric Roberts in. I mean, maybe you could put Mickey Rourke in apparently a blouse and a wig and do it like, you know, because he's done that before, apparently. But Vanessa Redgrave is extraordinary in that movie. Ironically, Vanessa Redgrave won an Oscar for Julia, and I believe she's only in like one scene in that movie, too. So she's you know she's known for the beatrice Strait type performances also very good in like her two scenes in howard's end so so she's she is the uh and she's not even she's not the big tim amazing larry award winner because we know that character already she's a main character in the movie she's just an adult the older version of it it's perfect yeah i can handle that pick that's a good call that's a good call like like that that is one of and she almost if i remember right there was talk of her potentially getting a supporting actress. Yeah, I was looking this up. She got a Broadcast Film Critics Association Award, and I think some award at a British Awards, but nothing, no Golden Globes or anything like that. But, it, you know, it t- certainly could have been in con- contention. Well, I, it, all three of the Brainies, I felt, were in contention, because Sersha got the nomination, and Ramola Garay was in the running for a nomination, and so was Vanessa Redgrave, so... It's fast. That that would have been fast. Can you imagine if three different actresses 
got nominated for supporting actress for the exact same performance or for playing the exact same character in the same year. That would have been nuts. Does that make it disqualified for our Maze and Larry Award when uh, if she the, her character she's an older version of a character? That's why I said it's not. He, uh, he said it's not an Amazing Larry winner. Yeah, because it's the main but, character I mean, in the movie. Would that disqualify? Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's an award about a character, not a performance. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Okay, honorable mention time. Uh, I've got I've got quite the list here. Um, so uh, I've got. It's better than uh, Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise doesn't make you cry. Vanessa Redgrave makes you cry at the end of that movie. Oh, I, I was crying laughing watching Tom Cruise. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, my honorable mentions: I've got uh, Brad Pitt in Deadpool two, uh, playing the uh, the Invisible Invisible Man. Uh, Hugh Jackman in X Men First Class. Uh, it's his shortest Wolverine performance, but it might be his best. When it, he just yeah, he's got one line. Yeah, he's got one line, and it's a great line. Uh, this might be uh, this might be cheating a little bit, but Jack Black in the Muppet movie, um, he gets kidnapped and is the is forced to be the host of their show. I, that, it's a pretty great great moment. Uh, John Wayne and I married a woman. I had to put it on here because I just watched the movie. Uh, Margot Robbie in the Big Short, I I thought deserved to be on here. Uh, if I had seen it, I would have put it on my list. And Todd, I'm I'm ashamed that you didn't. And that is Matt Damon and Euro Trip. Yeah. Oh God, great pick. God. Yeah, I haven't seen the movie, but I, I Scotty doesn't. Scotty know. doesn't know. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. That's a great. Pick. If I'd seen the movie, that'd be on the list. Uh, then I've got uh, Steve Buscemi in Parisia Tem for his his uh, part in that. Nice. It's probably a little longer than five minutes, but it, it was worth putting on here. Um, Charlton Heston in Wayne's World 2. I mean, talk about bringing in a closer. They literally replaced the actor in the middle of the scene so that he could give a good performance. Uh, the one I thought of as Zach was talking about the uh, the fortune teller in Before, uh, Before Sunrise was uh, the fortune teller in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Um, that tells him that the, his bike is in the basement of the Alamo. Um, that that's a great performance, and uh, that's a great movie to pull some of these out of too, because there's just a lot of those tiny little moments. And the one that I wanted to put on my list, but probably would have been cheating, so I left it off, was John Lovitz in the League of Their Own, because he's just amazing and he's always worth mentioning. But I'd say it's probably more, way too, way more than five minutes than. Yeah, he's got like three, four scenes, like a <laughs> three or four scenes. Yeah, uh, I want. Like, actual time he's on screen may have been five minutes or six or seven, but... Didn't that hurt them? <laughs> if I had your job, I'd kill myself. Stay here. Let me see if I can dig up a pistol. <laughs> you you mentioned him a lot, Terry. It could I almost have. be a drinking game every time it's, John it, Lovitz and League of Their Own comes up. Possibly my favorite, one of my favorite characters of all time. All right, Todd, honorable mentions. All right, so we were talking about ultimate, uh, Amazing Larry ones. I, I assume this is going to be on Zach's list. It's Larry Bishop as Larry Bud's boss in Kill of Volume 2. And my, uh also had Christopher Walken in Pulp Fiction and Christopher Walken in Annie Hall. Um, oh, yeah, good call. Uh, Gene, Hack Gene Hackman as the blind man in Young Frankenstein. I hate the movie, but that's actually a really funny, funny scene. Uh, Martin Scorsese and Taxi Driver. It's kind of mm. easy. 
Joe Pesci and the Good Shepherd, Uma Thurman and the house <laughs> that Jack built. Uh, that seems like three minutes long, but I mean, it's she's she's amazing in that scene. And the ones that it was kind of unclear how we were actually going to score this, so I just left them off, which are, of course, uh, Keith David in Requiem for a Dream. I'm pretty sure it's under, like, overall under <laughs> under under 540. <laughs> yep. Uh, then I have Julia Butters, the little girl in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, I think it's mm. the second scene that she's in where she's just basically being, like, abducted by Leo. I, I think that probably disqualifies it. Um... Ken Jeong in Knocked Up. Uh, he has a scene earlier on that I'm not sure how long it is, but uh, that I feel like that might be just over 540. And uh, Margot Martindale in Parisia Tem is the one that I came up with. And I know that that segment is only like 620 or something, but she's on, she doesn't come on screen for like 30 seconds. And I was like, I don't know, it's pretty close, but I'll, I'll leave it off. <laughs> you, t- you took it quite literally. Yeah, Parisha Tem is a great one to, to pull ones out of, because it's what, every segment is, what, seven minutes long? Something like so. that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, the Catalina Sandina Moreno scene is extraordinary, and I also love, yeah, Mar- Margot Martindale in that is awesome. Well, Steve Buscemi, too. That, I, I don't think he's as impressive as those other two. Isn't Steve Buscemi, it, wasn't that the Alexander Payne? Or no, was it that the was Brothers? Margot Martindale. That, yeah, it Coen was the Coen Brothers. Brothers. Yeah. yeah, Yeah, that's right. Where where he gets he gets beat up in the metro station for daring to look in the general direction of another guy's girl. All right, Zach, honorable mentions. Okay, so I do have some um, in the, in honor of Beatrice Strait. I have two scorned wife performances that I'd like to bring up, which are Uma Thurman in *Nymphomaniac* Volume One, not *The House That Jack Built*. She's not that *Nymphomaniac*. She's better in. Wait, wait and, was that under five minutes? Uh, maybe not. I don't know. But it was like one scene, it, okay. right? It, um, and Amanda Pete and Changing Lanes. Also another scene that might have been a little over five minutes, but she's great in it. Um, I, my my Julia Butters Award for like uh, little girl performance would be Sterling Jarens in Patterson. She's the poet who um, Adam Driver meets at his bus station and she reads her, her poem to him. That's a great scene. I'm amazed that J.K. Simmons and Up in the Air didn't come up at all. Um, Maggie Gyllenhaal and the way we go I've mentioned before um, Todd will know this one hopefully part of uh, a character I really wanted to put on my list but I couldn't because she was too long and an obvious amazing Larry Big Tim winner was Penelope Rushinoff as Tanya the therapist in an unmarried woman now Terry's never seen this movie I don't know if Todd knows the scene I'm talking about but when uh, uh, when Jill Claybaugh goes and sees her therapist. That therapist is amazing. I want to do a deep dive, just not character one time. Do you have any recollection of that scene, Todd? Not it was your number is your number nine of, of 78. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. um, Her- Harold Ramis in As Good As It Gets. How come no one mentioned Mark Pellegrino in uh, Mahal and Drive? Give me a break. Rodney Dangerfield in Natural Born Killers. Uh, Beverly D'Angelo for the deleted scene in High Fidelity. Percy Harvin in Super Bowl Forty Eight, And Christian Cologne in the 2015 Royals postseason World Series run. Who's Percy Mark Harvin Pellegrino? in the Super Bowl? Is that what? the Mark Pellegrino? Is that the the guy that is like trying to rob them or something? No, he's at the the coffee shop guy. The although he does he appear more than in just that scene? Well, no, he's not. That's not the guy that goes. Oh, yeah, that's the guy. He like rot. Yeah, he's like robbing somebody in. Well, I couldn't find the credit. You no, know, the guy that tells the story in the. That, co- no, that's uh, that's what's his name? That's, that's Patrick Fischler. Patrick yeah. Fischler, my bad. I'm Can sorry, I got about, confused. What? 
last week. Yeah, he's on the right stuff. So yeah, we talk about him all the time. <laughs> uh, you still need to watch that, Zach. I, it's on my list along with Band of Brothers. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now it's time to uh, to pick Adam's list. Try and predict what he will have on his list. Uh, just to let everyone know, he had such a hard time with his list. He sent it to us five minutes into our recording. So uh, we'll see how this goes. Here's my here's my prediction for Adam's list. Number five, I have Stan Lee in any MCU movie. It's a good uh, call. Number four, I have Desmond Llewellyn in any James Bond movie. He's Q in like the first 15 James Bonds. Uh, number three, I have Killian Murphy in The Dark Knight. He comes back for this like first scene of, as the Scarecrow. Number two, Christopher Walken, Pulp Fiction. Number one, Matthew McConaughey, The Wolf of Wall Street. It's too long. Yeah, it was over five minutes. Well, I'm putting it on there. Anyway. And he's got two scenes. All right. Uh, I have uh, Matt Damon in Eurotrip at number five, Alfred Molina in Boogie Nights at number four, James Earl Jones in The Sandlot at number three, Christopher Walken in Pulp Fiction at number two, and Dave Bautista in Blade Runner 2049 as his number mm-hmm. one. Ooh, that's a good call. Yeah, that was Dave Bautista was my number five for Blade Runner 2049. Uh, number four is John Cena in Trainwreck. Number three is Jonah Hill in Django Unchained. Number two, uh, Bill Murray in Zombieland. And number one, Tom Cruise in Tropic Thunder. The, the other one that I just remembered that I was going to put on my list, or at least on my honorable mentions that no one has said yet, was... Uh, um, Rob Reiner's mom as the best one-line delivery ever in When Harry Met Sally. I'll have what she's having. Yeah. 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 Okay, Uh, here we go. Adam's list. He says, this list is impossible, and I can't think of any good ones with under five minutes of screen time. Uh, So this list might suck. Thanks, Zach. Uh, Number five is Matt Damon and Eurotrip. Yeah. doesn't know. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great call. Uh, number four is Brad Bird as the voice of Edna Mode in The Incredibles. Nice. Uh, number three is Donnie Wahlberg as Vincent Gray in The Sixth Sense. Uh, number two is Elsa Lanchester as the monster's bride in The Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, okay. And number one, oh, gosh, I shouldn't have said it. Number one is Estelle Reiner in uh, When Harry Met Sally. I'll have what she's having. <laughs> Go figure. Wow. Uh, okay, so I didn't get any. I got one, and it was in the right spot. That was it my was in the right spot. <laughs> I'm now at 26 and a half. Terry's at 16. Zach's Thanks at to 19. Matt, Matt Damon. Matt Damon. <laughs> Scotty doesn't know. Oh, man. Fiona okay. says she's so trusting. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Todd won. He gets to pick the next category. And now it's time for trivia. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Boyd is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. And we've got some movies to report on. Uh, Zach, I'm going to you first. Tell us about what I forced you to watch. 
I was going to watch it anyway. I mean, it was sort of like a wasted pick because at some point I was going to watch it. I just didn't get along to it. But we had to have this conversation, so I wanted to hear what I wanted to hear what you thought. That is true. So um, I watched uh, One Night in Miami, the Regina King movie um, that we've had. To, it's interesting because we had some disagreement about it. Terry was a big fan of it. He had it on his top ten movies of the year. Todd gave it two stars. Um, and uh, I'm going to give it three stars. What a shocker. Um yeah, so let's start, let's start, as Gene Kranz would say, let's start on the side of the spacecraft that's good, okay? Um, we've had these recent string of black-centered movies that are very much stage-bound and theatrical, and I've criticized them. We had Mom Rainey's Black Bottom, and then Mickey and Mallory. No, what Malcolm was it called? Malcolm and Marie. Malcolm and Marie, <laughs> not, the, not Woody not Harrelson. Killers. <laughs> well, you mentioned it earlier, I don't know. Anyway, um... That's a movie I would have wanted to watch. Anyway, um, yeah, so One Night in Miami, I am pleased to report, does not feel stage-bound. Thank God. This is a movie that actually feels like a movie. Regina King, I thought, did a great job of interspersing um, different um, locations and sets and characters' interactions. And so if I had to sit there and watch a two-hour movie in a hotel room, um, maybe it would have to have Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman in it, but I don't know if I could do it, okay? So I'm glad that she, she spruced it up. It's a kind of an interesting first um, directorial debut project for her to, to take on for a feature-length movie. Um, I thought the performances were pretty good in this movie. Um, I think uh, the, you know, the two standouts for me are um, uh, Leslie Odom Jr. as Sam Cooke, um, and uh, Kingsley Ben Adir as Malcolm X, and that there to me those are the best. Uh, that's the best part of the movie is this idea of um, Malcolm X standing for one set of beliefs. You know the radicalization, the, the systematic oppression of Black people in this country versus Sam Cooke, who he accuses of being a sellout, someone who plays for white audiences, who doesn't infuse his music with any sort of revolutionary um, uh, meaning or, or symbolism. The weakness of the movie, though, is I think the other two characters. I'm not really sure what Muhammad Ali is doing there. I, I get that um, he's in his conversion from Cassius Clay to uh, um, Muhammad Ali, and I guess he has, you know, some something to do with uh, the the uh, division between Malcolm X and Sam Cooke. I have no idea why James Brown is there, with the exception, or Jim Brown is there, ex with the exception of the first scene in the movie, which I think is a good opening scene with him and Bo Bridges that establishes that in spite of how famous he is, he still suffers from discrimination. Um, in racism. Um, but yeah, I like the tete-a-tete -tete idea. I don't know why Jim Brown is there. I guess watching the movie, I couldn't help but think that anyone who watches this movie under the age of 40 would probably be under the assumption that Sam Cooke and Malcolm X were best friends and that Sam Cooke wrote his song because Malcolm X persuaded him to become more radical and Cassius Clay changed his name to Muhammad Ali because Malcolm X told him to do so. I don't know if this this movie is speculative, this story is speculative, so I don't know the historical accuracy piece. And the reason I bring that up is that for every movie that plays a little fast and loose with history like this movie does, um, you also get the Green Book side of things, when you get black, or excuse me, white creators, white directors, white screenwriters that, you know, say, well, I'm going to only selectively do this thing with, with the history of black people and not really do, you know, stay that, um, uh, 
you know, um, have that much fidelity to the historical events. Um, but that being said, I did think the movie was fascinating. Like I said, the highlights were Malcolm X and Sam Cooke. I, th I think it touches on, um, I think, really pertinent issues about black identity and authenticity um, in, in a world where these black men are superstars and they're actually um, really well paid and famous, but still have to struggle with the demons of their own. So um, cool movie. I'm a little surprised that it isn't getting more Best Picture buzz. It didn't get a nomination for Best Drama. Um, I feel like this is the movie. This is a movie that Oscar voters would really go for um, in the in the climate of 2020 and 2021. Um, not a great movie, but I was entertained by it. Yeah, I I I love this one. I felt it did everything that Ma Rainey's Black Bottom wanted to do, but and and so much better. Um, it, it, and it is completely fictional. That there is no evidence that this this meeting actually happened but i think it's fascinating to have this this uh moment where you've got these four titans of of african-american culture at that time come together with and obviously and i think that's what the strength is is you have the their characters are so set and and that is very accurate of how they were um coming in with their own conception of what they should be and then them having this this discussion throughout the night of of how they should all work together and how their all their personas work together in in accomplishing what they're trying to do i thought i thought it was fascinating and i agree it didn't feel stage bound at all um but it, it's it's exactly what what these types of movies should be and i i was shocked that Todd hated it because he loves these these movies that are a little a little claustrophobic and um and explore these complex characters and maybe he didn't like it because they were actual people or or, or what I don't know but I'm glad you you at least gave it a thumbs up okay I I don't I mean I think the movie is pretty stagey but the the main problem I have with it is the movie is dumb. Like, the screenplay is bad. It is so... It, it is like, we're going to take these four really famous African Americans, and we are going to have a civil rights discussion and give it to sixth graders. Like, that is what this felt like. It's like, we can't get them to actually... We can't get this movie greenlit any other way. We're going to have these, like, really famous people uh, being portrayed, and this is how we're going to tell this story, because there's no other way to do it. And I, I, th and I think it suffers from that. I th and and the, the dialogue is bad. Like, I mean, and, like, the Aldous Hodge, who I think is the best performance in the movie by far, even though, yeah, James, or Jim Brown does not belong in the movie necessarily, like, I think he is amazing in that, in that point, in that movie. He says, at one point, what a weird night. It's like, wow, did we, yeah, like, we all felt that. Why did we actually need that said out loud in this movie? And, I, I don't know, and it also has this, like, really bad message about how Malcolm X is basically saying... I, like, I need, like, I have this agenda I need to take care of, and I can't do it by myself because I'm not good enough. I need you famous people to help me manipulate everybody else into believing what I believe. And that's a really dangerous thing to, to, to have, <laughs> to, to have as be as your message of the movie. And I don't know, I, I, I don't, I can't really sign off on much of, the, of anything that the, that the movie did. I, I like Regina King overall, I think she, she's had some good uh, TV directing credits, but th I mean, this is not, this is not one of her, her good efforts. 
gay. I, I, I agree with a lot of what you said there, Todd. And I agree that, like, you you know the ending of this movie. I mean, I, I could see the final scene of this movie an hour in. I knew exactly how it was going to end. And it was exactly the way it did end. And um, in a way, it doesn't even really take that much risks. Um, and you're right. It, it does sort of, you know, impugn, I think, Malcolm X a little bit to say that he was someone who was manipulative and self-serving. Was he really at the Sam Co Sam Cooke concert in Boston? Like, if that didn't happen, I think that takes away the gravitas and the emotional power of that scene. So that's my biggest criticism is the historical inaccuracy piece. Because otherwise, I actually disagree with your point about the dialogue. I, I thought the dialogue actually was pretty good. I wish the movie had just been a My Dinner with Andre tete-a-tete -tete between Malcolm X and Sam Cooke. I don't know why the other characters need to be in it. Well, yeah, and, and like they, they belittle Muhammad Ali so much. Like He's this like yeah. moron little kid who's getting manipulated by Malcolm X into something that he that Malcolm X doesn't even believe in anyway. And, and that, I mean, I don't... I, I think that's really yeah, kind of I, tasteless. And, I mean, I think agreed. Leslie Odom Jr. is good, but he doesn't sound like Sam Cooke. He sounds like the guy from Nationwide commercials, because that's what he is. <laughs> <laughs> And the guy who's in the best picture musical nominee music. <laughs> yeah. One one more thing about Jim Brown. Another reason I didn't like him is that you have, you know, Cassius Clay converting to Muhammad Ali. Huge moment in his, his life. Muhammad, uh, Malcolm X leaving the Nation of Islam. Huge, huge moment. Sam Cooke um, on the precipice of stardom. Huge moment. And then what's Jim Brown's big thing? He's going to become an actor. Like, is that, does that take the same sort of, you know, gravity as those other three? I, mean, I think it was as big of a headline, though. I mean, uh, the, the best player, like, the best NFL player retiring after six years to be, to be in a movie? It just does, it, it, by comparison, it just doesn't feel as urgent. Yeah, especially because the NFL was not really, I mean, it wasn't even the NFL at the time, was it? <laughs> I mean, it, it wasn't like a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least you're giving it a thumbs up, though. I'm, Marginal. I'm, yeah, Todd, Todd, Todd may convince up. me I'll otherwise, but you're 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 in between. As I think I, I as lean I more toward Todd, be. but I would give it still thumbs up. Okay. Exactly in the middle of the two of us. Yeah. Well, Todd, let, let's go for some lighter fare and tell us about what you uh, what you were forced to watch. I watched the 1957 movie Silk Stockings, directed by Ruben Mamoulian. And it is a reimagining of Ninochka, which was a Best Picture nominee in 1939. It's almost like a nostalgic feeling, like, how they did this. Because, like, we have a lot of remakes, but this is just, like, this silly little musical adaptation of, like, one of the most important romantic comedies of all time. And, like, musicals just aren't, I guess, viable as much anymore. So, but it was an interesting trend that, that, that this was actually a possibility to do something like this. But it's about these three, like, idiot Soviets who are trying to bring back a defector from Paris, uh, and they fail, so they bring in, like, the big guns, which is Ninochka, played by Sid Charisse, and she's, like, gorgeous, but really, really serious. It's like an Emma Thompson role or something. And, um... Ooh, good call. She, like, reluct reluctantly gets charmed by Steve Canfield, played by Fred Astaire, who's a movie producer and, like, kind of manipulative, and he doesn't want uh, the defector to go back because he wants him to do the music for his next movie peter lore lori is in, in the movie and he plays one of like the the russians and he's he's awesome i can't remember the uh, other than arsenic old lace i don't think i've ever seen him play in a comedy and he is just brilliant here like he he absolutely steals everything he's in uh sid Charisse and fred astaire i think are really fun together they play like complete opposites of each other and uh 
it's it's entertaining that they slowly are kind of developing an attraction to each other. It, it's got some really like vintage Fred Astaire dance choreography and songs. I think it's a fun movie. It's it's really escapism. Uh, three stars. I mean, I have no problems with this movie. Oh, good, good. I think I gave it three and a half. Uh, it, it was it. It's a lot of fun. I mean, a lot of these those like forties, fifties musicals from MGM can really come out as clunkers. And I didn't feel like I, this one had something extra going for it. And I think the the history behind this was um, somebody took the uh, I, I think it was was it Cole Porter? Does that sound right? Cole Porter took the took the uh, the story of Nanachka and turned it into a Broadway musical. And this was the film version of the Broadway musical. I think that's how okay. that's how it worked. Um, one th- one of the things I know I, I checked out that was fascinating was the 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 title track or the title song to the film Silk Stockings was actually just performed as a dance number by Sh- Sid Charisse without the lyrics, which I thought was really interesting when she was like getting getting changed and going under her transformation. Oh yeah. Um. Uh. But uh. I mean, Fred Astaire is is great, even though he's kind of older in this one. It's it's kind of an older Fred Astaire. But it, it's Sid Charisse. I mean, this is Sid Charisse's show, and um, her, the her dance number for uh, Red Blues was is like was just outstanding. I like that thing. I could watch on repeat for hours because it's just such a great number. Um, it uh, yeah, it, it's just so much fun and so great. And I agree, Peter Lorre is is awesome. Uh, one of the other one of the other. Um, uh, Russians is the guy in uh, the third guy in On the Town, with uh, with Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra. Um, so so he's in this too. Um, and yeah, they're they're goofy and ridiculous, but but ultimately fun. It's it's just a lot of a lot of great fun there, and it's one of the better one of the better musicals of that that era, kind of sort of. So that's why I was going with. But I've seen it at least. I'm glad you liked it. Three stars is good. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. Like, I mean, I was never bored. It was just, I was just like, this is so silly, but okay. It's silly, but if you you just gotta lean into it. I mean, so many so many of the musicals that time, you just gotta lean into the silly and have fun with it. Okay, it is trivia time, and uh, we're gonna do something we've never done before. Uh, so we're gonna do uh, we're, we're gonna do a competition, and I'm gonna be giving clues to a movie. And uh, you guys are going to ring in when you when you want to give your answer. How do we? Ring and you're gonna you're gonna ring in by saying your name. So so the first one I hear say their own name, uh, it gets to, gets to answer. You only get to answer once per per uh, per question, and then uh, and so if you get it wrong, the other person gets gets as much time. Well, not as much. Well, time they as they get to hear the rest of the clues. Um, yes, yes, they get a, they, they get okay. to hear some more clues, and, and, uh, eventually the, there'll be a give up, but, um, so yeah. So it's like an incremental Jeopardy kind of thing. Kind of, kind of, yeah, yeah. And so I'll be, I'll kind of be given some clues, and then a, as we go along, I'll, yeah, that's how it'll go. Okay? So, so here's, here's the theme. What if here. I say Todd's name on accident? Does that mean you have to call on him? Yes, that means, <laughs> no, I <laughs> Say your own name. Okay. Uh, so, uh, 
so here here's a here's the the theme here we are on the we are recording this on the last day of february so we're looking ahead to the month of march and uh what i did was i took the top three films of march box office uh of film sell of years that are kind of anniversary years and we're gonna see if you can come up with the films that were top three in the box office of specific years in the month of march okay and we'll see we'll see how long this goes and I, i've got quite a ways out depending on on how well we're doing okay all right so Mar- i'll give march I'll box give clues. office by year what March box office by year. March box office by year. So we're going to start with 2016, five years ago, March box office. So uh, the number one, or no, we'll go, we'll start with number three. Uh, Number three was an R-rated comic book movie. This was not in the MCU. How many clues do you... Uh, do, are you going to give so that I know how much I should let him get after that? Um, uh, I, I don't know until someone rings in, I guess. <laughs> but you can't come back, so then that you're just going to basically give it away eventually? No, 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 or, no, no, or no, are you no, going to no. stop I, at, like, I, I'll, five? I'll only, I, I, I'll stop at, like, I'll stop at, like, five or something like that, yeah. Okay. Uh, the, the, uh, the main character was portrayed by the same actor in a previous movie made about 10 years preview before wait say that again <laughs> this character was portrayed by the same actor in a movie about 10 years earlier that many say butchered the character in that movie it was nominated oh, for Todd. two gold deadpool Todd. Deadpool is correct. Man, that took way too long to, for you guys to I was thinking you were going with Dread, and I was like... <laughs> I, mean, I guess I didn't realize it was 2016. Alright. Okay. Number two... Uh, uh, by the way, that made $64 million in the month of March in 2016. Number two uh, was also a comic book movie, but from the other studio that does comic book movies. This was the first big screen team up between two iconic superheroes i heard zach first batman v superman batman v superman is correct it made 209 million in 2016 okay number one in march at the box office in 2016 was mentioned in my top five cop movies on our last power ranking it was a winner of one Oscar and nominated for another. No, it wasn't nominated for another. I thought it was. Winner of one Oscar in a very specific category. <sighs> this movie... Oh, uh, Zach. Yeah. Zootopia. Zootopia is correct. Oh, good call. Win- winner of anima- best animated film. Yeah. Okay. So right now it's two to one. Now we're going back 10 years to 2011. Top three films at the box office in 2011. By the way, Zootopia made $255 million in the month of March alone in 2016. Okay, number three in the box office for March in 2011 was a movie 
starring Matt Damon. Todd. Yes. The Adjustment Bureau. The Adjustment Bureau. Which I mentioned earlier in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, my, my, ne- my next one is going to be and Emily Blunt. But, uh, okay. All right. Oh, gosh. How am I going to... Okay. What, what clues am I going to give for this one? Uh, number two... You're making them up on the spot? Yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> wow. That's impressive. <laughs> All right. Number two movie out uh, of uh, the box. Oh, by the way, Adjustment Bureau made $56 million in March of 2011. All right. Number two was a uh, was a, a sci-fi alien invasion film starring Aaron Eckhart and uh, Michelle Rodriguez. Todd. Todd. Battle L.A. Battle Los Angeles. I've never heard of that movie. Made seventy-four million. Wow. I saw that in the theater, midnight showing. Uh, it's a long, It's not important. <laughs> <laughs> midnight showing. I used to do that basically every week back back then. All right, number one for March in 2011. This movie uh, was uh, a team up of actor director that had been done previously in a major Disney franchise. This was not a Disney movie, though. It also was a winner of one Oscar for animated feature. Todd. Todd. Rango. Rango. Gore Verbinski, who did all the Pirates movies. All right. So after after two rounds, it's four to two, Todd. As you can imagine, these are probably going to get progressively more difficult as we get further back. Yeah, because I think I saw all six movies in theaters. <laughs> yeah, and I have not seen any of those six movies. You haven't seen At any all? of the no, six movies? No, I haven't seen Deadpool. I haven't seen any of them. You haven't seen, you haven't Zootopia. seen Zootopia? Oh, I've seen Zootopia. Okay, uh, five out of six I haven't seen. Well, and the further Certainly back you go... Certainly never seen them in theaters. The further back you go, the... Uh, Less likely you are to find good, uh, good March releases too. So, okay, two thousand six, fifteen years ago. <coughs> Number three was a Walt Disney talking animal movie, <coughs> starring Tim Allen. Oh man. And Kristen Davis from Sex and the City. <laughs> Sounds terrible. Remake of like a classic old time thing. Five, four, three. How many words in the title? Two, three. One. The first word is the. I know that. <laughs> oh, uh, Todd, the shaggy yeah. dog. The shaggy dog. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I was just about to say it. Todd got it at the last second. All right. Number two is a comic book movie, but a very different comic book movie. This comic book movie was written by the Wachowskis. Todd. Speed Racer. Incorrect. Zach. Zach. V for Vendetta? V for Vendetta is correct. 
That had to have been around the same time, right? <laughs> and that was Bukowski. Speed, Speed Racer, it, I think, came after. It, Speed Racer was was directed by them. This was just written by them. Okay. Uh, 2008. All right. Number. Oh, by the way, uh, Shaggy Dog had 51 million in March. Uh, v for Vendetta had 52. Number one had 68 million in March of 2006. The uh, let's see here. The the description, the plot synopsis on uh, IMDb says a thirty-something is still living with his parents until they hire an interventionist to help him graduate out of the house. That's where the fun begins. This is number one. This is number one. It is starring a oscar-winning actor that has won since this film and someone that is known for their all-time great tv work in a very in a series that was already mentioned because of someone else that started another movie this year um what? his Sex parents are played by kathy bates <laughs> and terry bradshaw zach zach okay it so it's that Matthew McConaughey movie, right? Um, right, isn't it? Okay, I think, but I, I I'm forgetting the title. I think it's Failure to Launch. Failure to Launch is correct. All right. Okay. <laughs> uh, I did not know that that's what that was about. <laughs> oh man. Okay, we're doing good. We're doing good. Okay. Now, going back to 2001, 20 years ago this next month, these were the three highest movies at the box office. Number three was mentioned repeatedly on our... Yeah. The Pledge. Incorrect. What? There's no way that made any money. Uh, I guess guess that makes sense. I just thought said repeatedly. This, This movie was mentioned repeatedly on our last episode of the podcast was what I was going to say. Yeah, I feel like that was mentioned repeatedly the last episode. But, Not the okay. last episode, maybe two episodes ago. Um, it was written by David Mamet and Steve Zalian, uh, apparently. I didn't know that. Hannibal. Hannibal. Did you know it was written by David Mamet and Steve Zalian? I knew it was yes, I David did. Mamet. I didn't know Steve yeah. Zalian was there. Sadly. Okay. Uh, That's that not made... that bad of a movie. It's pretty bad. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I've watched it, I, the more I've watched it, the more I kind of appreciate it. It has a good ending. All right. Uh, number two, I have not seen, so we'll see what I can do for you guys. Oh, jeez. Number two, uh, the, the uh, plot synopsis on IMDb is a tough cop in an inner city precinct discovers a web of dirty cops and corruption. It is starring Steven Seagal. Oh, man. Wow. And DMX. Isaiah Washington, Anthony Anderson. Um, Zach. Tom Arnold. Zach? Is it like Never Die Alone? Something like that? That is incorrect. Okay. Um, Let's see here. Uh, Yeah, Tom Arnold's in it. Bruce McGill is in it. A hard target or something? I don't know. No. Exit Wounds. Oh. Nice. Exit Wounds. Made $37 million in 2001. You said DMX. I was like, it was not Cradle to the Grave. Steven Skull's not in that. 
All right. Number one at the box office in March of 2001 is starring possibly the two most beautiful people in the world in 2001. Zach. Zach. The Mexican. The Mexican is correct. My next one is going to be, and directed by number one of 2006, because it was directed by Gore Verbinski. (laughs) Gore Verbinski in March, man. I was going to say Spy Game. That would mean... Yeah. Well, you know, Robert Redford, I mean, he's pretty beautiful. <laughs> the score is uh, six to five Todd. Oh, so this is, a, this is a tight game here. This is this is a tight game. There, there hasn't been one that we haven't gotten yet. Well, the yeah, Steven Seagal. exit wounds. Oh, well. I, is that a real movie? I mean, that... <laughs> we're we're, we're going we're gonna to call... This game is a Tuco game. It's tight, tight, tight. <laughs> All right. Do we get double Thanks. points for this going further back? Uh, maybe not double points. This is okay. the third what? straight episode we've mentioned Tuco, by the way. <laughs> and the pledge. Yeah, and the, and pledge. the pledge, apparently. Which I think came out in March of 2001. But All right. 1996, 25 years ago. These were the top movies at the box office. Making $32 million in March of 2006 is another movie starring Steven Seagal. Uh, Zach. Zach. Under Siege 2. That is incorrect. <laughs> Dark um, come on, man. My next thing was going to was going to be he's not the main character. Oh. Um <laughs> well that changes it. The uh the plot synopsis is when terrorists seize control of an airliner, an intelligence analyst accompanies a commando unit for a mid-air boarding operation. The other two stars of it are Kurt Russell and Halle Berry. Ooh, sounds fun. Sounds awesomely bad. John Leguizamo, Oliver Platt, B.D. Wong, apparently. Okay. I have not seen it. I have no idea what this is. Zach. You already the Passenger. It. It's, no. The, oh. the movie is called Executive Decision. Oh. <laughs> kind of sounds like Exit Wounds. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Number two is a is a romance that was nominated for best original song in 19 for 1996. Zach. Zach. The mirror has two faces. That is incorrect. God damn it. I it should just star- wait for you to read it. Yeah, it is starring <laughs> someone who Todd thought was one of the most beautiful people in 2001. Robert Redford. <laughs> <laughs> and Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh. Oh, I know this. If Todd gives up and you know it, I'll give you half a point. Okay. Um, whatever. <laughs> Stockard, Channing, and Joe Montana are also in it. It was directed by Joe Avnet and I've written by seen Joan Didion. It's not a very good movie. Oh, yeah, I have no idea. Up Close Zach, and Personal. Up Close and Personal is correct. You get half a point. Ooh, okay, so coming all down to number one of 96. So we can't number... have a tie. Assuming this is the, the last one, which prick. Please make this the last one. This is just cruel and this, unusual. This can be... Let me look at the next one. No, we gotta do one more year. We're oh gonna do one God. more year after this. Okay. Uh, Alright. So, number one at the box... By the way, Up Close and Personal made $38 million. This one made $70 million at the box office in March of 1996. It is a remake of a foreign film directed Todd. by Mike... Yes. Uh, the Birdcage. The Birdcage oh. is correct. 
Good call. Mike, Mike Nichols. Mike Nichols. Yeah, then I was going to go into some of the stars. All right. So it is seven to five and a half. Todd has a one and a half point lead, which sets him up, I think, pretty good for. Can we do March of 1987 trivia? Because I know that one is because it was the number one movie when I was born, <laughs> which was Lethal Weapon. Oh, I, didn't, okay. I, didn't, I didn't mean if we were if that was actually your year, but I should get a point just for that knowledge. <laughs> do you know the number one movie that was it, it when you were born? No. I don't. Oh, you should look, look it up. We should look that up. Summer 1988. It was probably like big or something. Yeah. Or maybe maybe it was Die Little Hard. Dorrit. Could have been Die Hard. All right, here we go. 1991, 30 years ago. This is our last year. Top well, is, three is Silence the of the Lambs one of them? Well, you're just going to have to wait to find out. Oh, okay. Um... Number three at the box office is starring uh, someone who's already been mentioned as a beautiful person. <laughs> I won't tell you which of the three. Um, the, the plot synopsis on IMDb is a young woman fakes her own death in an attempt to escape her marriage marriage. Zach. Zach. Sleeping with the enemy? Sleeping with the enemy starring Julia Roberts is correct. Made thirty-two million. Or no, sorry. Yeah, no, thirty-two million. I was looking at the wrong category, but it was still right. All right, number two made thirty-five million in March. It is a sequel of a beloved kids franchise. Um, from the first movie to the second movie, they changed one of the main characters at the actor actor of the main character, one of the main characters. It stars four animals and their other animal who is their mentor. It is, oh gosh, let's see here. These animals are named for Renaissance artists. Oh, Zach. Todd. Zach. Oh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle 2. Yes, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. Is the that Secret the Secret of, of the, the Ooze? Ooze? Yeah. Oh, Todd! I was hoping you would get that one. Oh yeah, I mean, I had I had it like right up, yeah, at the wrong moment. The number one right. movie on when I was born was Coming to America, which it seems appropriate because the second one's coming out next week. <laughs> yeah, there you go, there you go. Okay, number one in March of 1991 made 50 million dollars at the box office. And won five Oscars. Zach. Zach. The Silence of the Lambs. The Silence of the Lambs. That is correct. I'm glad wow. it made more money than uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. I, I've we could do the number ones of the next of uh, of a couple more years if you want. I've no, I I, I I think we're good. I think we're good. Okay. <laughs> oh, because you just won. Yeah. You just finally won. have the lead for the no, first time. No, this is too close. This is too close. We gotta do. We gotta. We gotta do a. I mean, I gave you a half a point for one, so we're going to do a tiebreaker. We're just going to do the Fine. number one for the next the next two. What does that mean? 1990? No. Oh. 86 and 81. Okay. 1986, number one made $24 million at the box office in March. It was written by John Hughes. Todd. 
Todd. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That is incorrect. It starred Molly Ringwald and John Cryer. Yeah. Zach. Zach. Sixteen Candles. Incorrect. Um, Todd for the half point. Wait, wait, no, what a sec. Wait, you can't do that. That's what you did. That's how you got your half point. Okay, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty in Pink is correct. That was number one of the box. Okay, so it comes down to March of 1986. Comes down to. In 1981. The number one movie in 1981. Suppose that's appropriate. Good luck. Um, Okay. This movie here. uh, Okay. If you guys get this, I'll be impressed. All right, here's the uh, the the uh, synopsis on IMDb. The now adult Antichrist plots to eliminate his future divine opponent, while a cabal of monks plot to stop him. This movie is starring Sam Neill. <laughs> written written by Andrew Birkin, directed by Graham Baker. And that's literally all I have for you. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing. I have a guess, but... What's your guess? Is it In the Name of the Rose? It is not In the okay. Name of the Rose. It's a movie called The Final Conflict. Okay, so now I've got... I've got we've got a... Uh, and it goes on. It goes on. No, we're not going to go 76. We're going to go with number two from 86. All right, number two from March of 1986 was a movie that qualified for the 1985 Oscars. It was directed by a legendary director and famously won no Oscars despite being nominated. Zach. Zach. Uh, The Color Purple. The Color Purple is correct. Victoria. That's what you meant. I, I, I was thinking you were talking about the director. Yeah, I was, I was kind of confused about that, too. No, no, yeah, no. I, I meant the, the movie was famously didn't win any Oscars. Well, yeah, I, I would have gotten that. for double digits. <laughs> yeah, All right, I, I was well, thinking... okay. Zach wins. Zach wins. That was fun. That was fun. Okay. I thought that <laughs> one was word. fun. That, it was different, for uh, if nothing else. Okay. It was, it was creative. It's... I like it. All right. It was something different. It was something different. All right. Quote of the daytime. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. Zach, you won. You get to go first. All right. Well, I'm trying to pull an audible and go with a quote by the most beautiful person alive, Robert Redford, but I can't find anything that good. So I went with... um, you know, my number one uh, character was uh, Vanessa Redgrave. So I went with a comment that I found on the YouTube clip from her scene. And it's by someone named Amelia Potter. And she wrote, just finished the book in my English literature class. And throughout studying the book, we watched the film as some of us find it difficult to visualize what is happening when reading the book. Which, by the way, I can attest to because I've actually read the book, Atonement. I read it before the movie came out. We read the last chapter together and then watched the scene in class yesterday. And you've probably never seen so many 17, 18, and 19-year-olds cry so much over fictional characters. We were an absolute mess, which makes me think, what are we doing with this online teaching? Let's just show them atonement and have them cry. That's what we should be doing as teachers with the Mariana Rivera of actors, Vanessa Redgrave. It's, it's the, the closer. Whole, it's, 
it's the whole uh, theory of Jim Valvano, right? If you can laugh, laugh, cry, cry think, think. Day, yep, yep. That's, that's, a, good that's day. a good day. That's a good day. All right, well, I'll go next. My quote is uh, from I Married a Woman, which I've mentioned several times in this podcast, which is a great movie. Uh, this this quote is um, is part of a discussion in the house, and the main quote is by uh, is by the mother-in-law as she's bemoaning the fact that uh, that her relationship with her husband was much better than her daughter's relationship with, with, with her husband. And, uh, and she says, uh, Janice, when I was first married to your father, you remember him. Uh, why, we were always out somewhere. It was hardly a night, but why, we didn't take some business client out to wine him and dine him. And I always went along to help him entertain. If I do say so myself, I made your father what he is today. To which the husband says, may he rest in peace. <laughs> nice. It, it's it's a great, you gotta watch the movie. It's a great movie. Alright, Todd. Uh, so mine comes from the movie you made me watch, Silk Stockings. And uh, so at one point, Sid Charisse asks, uh, no, no, Fred Astaire asks to Sid Charisse something like, aren't you attracted to me? And she says, the arrangement of your features is not entirely repulsive. <laughs> and I feel like that describes this podcast. Yes. <clears throat> yes, that's a great Beautifully quote. Beautifully put. That's a great quote. All right. With that, we're going to bring this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening uh, to episode 115. Uh, we'll be back at you soon with some more uh, content, more episodes, more ridiculousness. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.